Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and this is our 500th episode. For this one, a lot of us took time to reflect on our journey, both with the show and also with strategy games as a whole. I spoke first with Rowan Kaiser and TJ Hafer, and as conversations with Rowan tend to be, it was a surprisingly searching and reflective exchange about our hobbies and relationships to them. Then Troy and I discussed our long friendship and association with the show, Troy is also, however, in the process of moving out of an apartment tower that is covered in construction crews, and I do apologize for the sound of the dawn-to-dusk concrete grinders that were running in the background. Finally, Bruce sent me back to the near beginning of computer wargaming with Chris Crawford's Eastern Front 1941, while we struggled to come to terms with our spotty Skype connection. I think the conversations are good, better than our audio in many places, and that's about the most 3MA way this thing could have gone. By episode 1000, I think we'll have this thing in studio quality, or at least a pretty decent AM radio quality. Anyway, here's episode 500. Please enjoy. So, when it comes to formative gaming experiences, I think we've been talking about this for a week or more, and everyone seems to have a little bit of uh, aversion to commitment when it comes to this, which I, which I understand, <laughs> but... But now the hour is upon us. Who is ready to show and tell and reveal the game that probably explains the most about who you are as a 3MA panelist? Oh, you've just changed it again. No, no. <laughs> oh, don't do this to me. You, oh, no. No. Uh, who who you are as a strategy gamer? Who you are as a just, stra- just a person? It's fine. As yeah, a person, fine. as a strategy gamer, as a critic, or as a three of a panelist, could be four different answers. I think I have three for those. Well, if if you had to average all of those uh, <laughs> factors, I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> well, it it ends up. What's your favorite movie? Uh, so, what's the average of hard boiled? Uh, <laughs> And in the mood for love, that would be the Grandmaster. Okay, perfect. I guess you which, can do that. Which is not my favorite movie, as I've never seen it. But um, I feel like mine is mine is possibly the latest chronologically because I'm I'm one of the I'm one of the youngins on Three of A, uh, so maybe I should go last. I don't know. I, I think you're the you're the most certain about yours and. Uh, it's straightforward enough that we can maybe launch off of it. So Okay. Well, the the first strategy game I got really, really into was Warcraft 2 Tides of Darkness. Um, and that's probably also the game that made me a strategy gamer. I don't know if it defines me as a strategy gamer. There's all these different metrics we could, you know, debate about. Um, but I do remember, uh, you know, sitting and, and watching... Uh, my friend's older cousin, this is actually uh, DM Speyer, uh, if you guys watch any Lorsworn stuff, it's his older cousin, Brandon, that introduced us to a lot of those early DOS games. Um, <laughs> early DOS? <laughs> well, not early DOS games. The not, early, not early, off, games, early games that we played originally through a DOS format. Uh, this, this would have been early 90s. Um, but I just remember that that it kind of blew my mind because I was used to at that point games where you usually control a single character and you know you're running around you're jumping sometimes you have a gun and then you know I'm looking at this 
this town center with this little, you know, orc peon next to it. And it's like, oh, no, you send him out to get gold and then you make more of them and you send them to get wood. And then you, you know, build a I can't remember what the orc equivalent of the barracks was called in Warcraft 2 off the top of my head. Um, maybe they were just all called barracks at that point. And then you build an army, and then you, you, you're controlling multiple guys at once, and you can kind of select and move them all around in different configurations. And, uh, you know, you had you had ranged units and melee units and casters, and you had to learn what their abilities do. And, you know, all of these conceits that are very familiar to us as veteran RTS players today that were kind of brand new and bl mind-blowing to me at that time. Um, I also think it's... Oddly enough, what got me into high fantasy, I played Warcraft way before I ever, like, discovered The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. I think that was also point of contact for this whole, like, swords and sorcery and elves and orcs sort of milieu for me. So, yeah, it's... That's a very weird and backwards way to come yeah. to it. This is... I, I am discovering that being on the, <laughs> the part of the show with TJ is going to turn me into the dude from the end of The Last Crusade. Like, this is... This is a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So so I think that it, it would actually probably be hard to pick a game that was more, like, culturally formative to me than Warcraft 2. Uh, because high fantasy, epic fantasy, and, you know, strategy games are two things that I am still very much, uh, very much tied into to this day. So, um now the the question I have for you is, mm -hmm. in what way, when I when I think of you, I don't think of you as somebody who is I, like I don't consider RTS games your first love at this point anymore. Uh, not not at this point. They very much were from about like nineteen ninety five ninety six up through probably when I. Yeah, well, I guess Total War is in itself kind of an RTS game. It's a little bit different because you're making a lot more strategic decisions outside of the battle layer, which is something that, that you know, Warcraft 2 didn't really have. Um, yeah, prob uh, probably until I found maybe Civilization 3, I think RTSs were kind of my jam, and then I kind of moved into other genres of strategy um, you know, obviously Crusader Kings 2 was a huge, huge moment in my, uh, in my gaming life. Um, yeah, RTSs were very much like my main thing or one of my two, two or three main things for several years. I mean, I don't know if you have, I'm sure you've seen some of this, Rob, but TJ's ability to go all in on Blizzard bullshit is still quite remarkable. Oh yeah, yeah. I I was like a Warcraft lore, walking Warcraft lore encyclopedia. Uh, I don't know how much that's still true in in this world of you know World of Warcraft. You know, changes the lore every two years or so. Uh, but uh, yeah, I I would like write Warcraft fan fiction. I would create these entire alternate timelines of like. Uh, what if, uh, what if Anduin Lothar won the Battle of Blackrock Spire? Like, and then I would extrapolate, like, a whole universe off of that. Like, I was, okay, I was very deep TJ. into the Warcraft lab rabbit hole there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so, so Warcraft yeah. fandom is your origin story. It is. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways it really is, yeah. So, I, I, uh, 
I was able to convincingly enough make up what the next three World of Warcraft expansions were going to be. Um, I think this was around the time of Mists of Pandaria that I posted it anonymously on a forum and it got picked up by like Giant Bomb or someone. It was like potential leaks from <laughs> Blizzard Insider because like the, the scenario I had crafted was plausible enough that people were like, oh, maybe this is a former Blizzard employee who knows what the next expansions are going to be. So, yeah. Sprinkle in an exotic setting, <laughs> little bit of racism. Yeah, uh, yeah. There you go. People were yeah. like, oh, shit. Pull in a exactly. fan favorite from Warcraft 3 that hasn't been hit yet. <laughs> now, yeah, well... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just, just going to ask. Yeah. Uh, when I think back to Warcraft 2, though, so I do remember a lot of fun mission voiceover, I want to say, like when they're sort of giving you the briefings. Oh, um, yeah. But I also don't remember it being a game. I don't remember story very well. I remember, for one thing, the campaigns basically mirrored each other, right? Like whoever you were playing was winning that war. Uh, but, yeah. it, but it felt like... It was pretty much like you were you were you were following the same steps of the story, just wearing different colors. I'm pretty sure Warcraft two they were sequential. I think no, like the, no, they were they, they were they were simultaneous. Where it like started out with them being roughly the same, going like up up the coast of Lordaeron, uh, and then the last section of them got pretty different, depending like I think. Uh, you have. I might be thinking of Warcraft One. That's the one where you have to kill Gul'dan. Yeah, at the end. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah no, Warcraft I think you're Two, Warcraft One. Yeah, yeah. Warcraft Two may have had some major differences towards the end, but it was generally pretty simultaneous. The chronology was different on some, but uh, I hated it. Like, <laughs> I I actively thought that this was like one of the worst game stories I'd ever seen portrayed. Uh, Really? Yeah, I was. It took me a long ass time to get to Warcraft Two because how annoyed I was at how, uh, or to get to Warcraft Three because how annoyed I had been at like all of this setup and world building and interesting things that went into Warcraft Two that actually manifested really poorly as the game that I played. Yeah, I mean, this this is the thing I'm, I do kind of wonder about is. That was a game that I can see it being really appealing for you, TJ, because I feel like you would have had to do a lot of investigation and imagining to bring that world to life in some ways. Because in terms of what the game tells you, there's not a whole lot there. Now, maybe, uh, what is it, Beyond the Dark Portal uh, is the expansion? Yeah, that, that yeah. added a fair amount more of uh, both personality and just kind of hey, what just happened in the manual and stuff? Right. Yeah. Because that one, that one is centered on now an irrevocable canonical outcome, which is that the Alliance uh, wins that war and yes. mm -hmm. pursues the orcs through the Dark Portal. And I can't remember. They're going there to mess some shit up, basically. <laughs> They're going to really put the screws to the yeah. orcs. And yeah. it's going to be some really hard missions along the way. Uh, but that was kind of that was the first time I became I started to realize like okay now they are developing a story because prior to that it felt to me very much like if you wanted to play orcs you got a story where the orcs just kick ass and they win a lot 
ditto yeah. humans. Uh, and so while you would have cutscenes that like you know show the stakes being raised, there was never a sense of like, oh yeah, these, this is a this is a world full of characters and events and a history that I am I am helping to shape here. None of that registered for me uh, until like Warcraft Three really becomes a best in class RTS narrative. So I am curious, like TJ, what did what did becoming a little like lore fanboy back in this period look like? Was it mostly just sandbox imaginative play? Like, wouldn't it be cool if this happens? Where like was it chasing down bits of lore from like strategy guides? Yeah, I mean there wasn't a ton to go on because I mean this is still early enough that you couldn't like go on the internet and like go to like a Warcraft fan forum and hear people discuss their fan theories. This was still far enough back that like it was you know it was your friends on the playground and you're talking about oh have you got to this mission or this mission and like what do you think of this character and it wouldn't be cool if you know this guy and this guy fought like who do you think you could win we were still kind of in that semi-analog era of games discourse um and so it, yeah it was a lot of that it was it was a lot of kind of like you and your friends would get together and play warcraft multiplayer and kind of talk about who your favorite heroes were and who your favorite units were in, in almost sort of like a comic book fashion, which is very much kind of how Chris Metzen would later develop the setting uh, to be kind of about these larger than life kind of fantasy superheroes. Um, as I think a way that, that, that Rowan, you've described it in the past. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that was kind of our relationship with the game. It was very personalized. It was kind of, one of the last properties settings that I had a, a a relationship with that was not directly predicated on the internet and the discourse, uh, so to speak. Uh, so I think that, and that's probably one of the reasons it's still kind of special to me. Did you play multiplayer? Oh yeah, yeah, I played a lot of multiplayer. We used to, the, Warcraft 2, I remember when the Battle.net edition came out, like the number of players was like, this weird scaling thing based on the number of discs you had like you didn't need to have a disc for every player but it was like you needed like one disc to play two player and you needed like two actual discs to play for up to four people i don't remember what the exact numbers were but it was something weird like that where it's like a certain a certain percentage of the people involved in the multiplayer game needed to have a disc in their disc drive um uh, which I don't I don't know if anybody did anything like that after after that but yeah we would like take it and install it in the computer labs at school um, usually because most of us couldn't uh, we were at, we were at a point where like people's houses generally had one computer in it and you could, probably couldn't convince your parents to be like hey can I log this multi hundred dollars of computer equipment over to my friend's house to play Warcraft. So we'd usually do it, you know, after school in the computer lab or somewhere that there were already multiple computers available. Yeah, I, I, I told the story before, but I just there was no way we were ever getting two game capable computers in the house at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and our computer labs at school were pretty well policed. And also, I was playing this game probably a little earlier than you were. Um, and so the computer lab was just more of a treasured object in my school system uh, <laughs> than it probably became later but i do remember 
thinking because I just had no idea how anything worked. I had no idea. So I knew I didn't have an internet connection, but it had the like phone modem connection option there. And I was like, cool. I will just, uh, oh, it says wait for call. Okay. I'll just wait for someone to call and uh, that'll <laughs> like, I'll get a game going. And yeah. I remember like leaving the game running for like an hour waiting for me to get my call so that I would, I would find a game because surely, surely someone is being like yented with my phone number or something. <laughs> uh, and, and we're going to yeah. make this work. Um, and so well, that congratulations, was, that was you got that at Warcraft three, and uh, the world has never been the same. Yeah, well, and more so StarCraft. Like, if you want to talk about multiplayer RTSs, StarCraft was like really when I got really into playing multiplayer competitive RTSs. Like, we had a group of you know six or seven people at my school who played StarCraft online pretty regularly and you know we sucked like if we went on ladder we would just get destroyed we'd play against each other and be like all right i'm gonna go all hydralisks you go all zealots and we're just gonna like meet in the middle of the map and just see who would win you know between those two armies like we weren't really playing the way that you think about you know it, we, we weren't we weren't playing gsl level yeah. <laughs> which might surprise you uh but yeah we would just like launch into a match and be like all right we're just gonna mess around and have fun and that was that was kind of our our relationship with starcraft yeah warcraft 2 was the last rts where i was convinced i was good at rts's and then starcraft <laughs> uh yeah i did start having all yeah. experiences and i realized no no i am not even average mm -hmm. probably um okay rowan yes in however you wish to construct the question, <laughs> well, that's have the you problem, isn't it? A Rosetta Stone of gaming for Rowan Kaiser. Um. Well, if I can go through the ones that I wanted to do but can discard, I'll feel better. So, Civilization's an extremely obvious one. Mm-hmm. Um, so obvious, I'm not sure anything really needs to be said. We've talked about Civ quite a bit. Uh, it's very well known what the genre has taken from Civ. Um, yeah. At a personal level, and we talked about this when we did our 2000s show with Jeff Green, uh, The Sims was super important for me. Um, in part because, like I talk about, I call him that he did for computer gaming world where he talked about how he made himself in the sims and all his sim self did was sit on the couch and cry or play computer games <laughs> and this was I like i think i remember, I remember column, yeah. actually yeah, yeah i was reading his column at that time yeah yeah uh and this was like a moment where it clicked to be that you could write about video games in a way that wasn't just monumentally fucking boring um <laughs> For money, like obviously I'd been on forums and stuff around then, and, you know. The Sims is also an interesting one because it is a strategy game, it is an RPG, it is whatever you want to call a simulation. It's all it's, it, it messes around with all these different genres in a way that uh, hit me when I was wanting to like experiment and poke at what the limits of genre were in a critical sense. So that one's a real good one. 
Um, although that's mostly all I have to say about it. Uh, but the one that I have mentioned before that I think was probably the most interesting and not untrue is uh, Warlords from Simtex. No, those were the those were the Master of Orion people. Um, SSG. That's it. Uh, the SSG Warlords, the turn-based fantasy war game from 1989, I believe, and not the arcade game from a few years before, uh, which was a sort of, like, we would call it grand strategy now, uh, war game without a tactical, without a tactical layer and a tiny bit of RPG, uh, to it where there was one single map of one particular continent or whatever that had eight different potential like factions and starting zones each of which were very very different and simulating it through would create a different kind of um, equilibrium each time and so it hit on several things that i was and still am very interested in, which is kind of the the embedded map, uh, the aspect of simulation within within a game, uh, asymmetric. I mean, it's they weren't super asymmetric. They were all like roughly even in terms of like you pick one, you probably have roughly an even shot of starting of ending the game on top, but. Uh, how you manage to get there and which choices you make in the beginning of the game might lead in different directions. And just like, I don't know, maybe giving me some uh, some bad ideas about how much I'm going to like fantasy strategy games for the rest of my life, because that's been kind <laughs> of a disaster. Uh, I hope this doesn't awaken anything. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Total Warhammer's good. Total Warhammer is good. It got like, there. Uh, yeah, yeah, it did. And you know, when I when I am describing this game, other than the lack of a tactical layer, Warlords was very total Warhammer from 1989. Uh, it it hit this sort of grand generic fantasy where you could play everything from the like the good white knights to the big evil skeleton guy and uh, all these all these different. Uh, permutations of how the map could go depending on how you felt like it you had a each faction started with a single hero that they could build up and uh would sort of be their flag bearer although those things could die like paper at any time so that was not a great thing to get too invested in but uh yeah that's uh, that that hit a lot of different things for me um the first two sequels, Warlords 2 and 3, were also big games for me in very different ways, especially 3. Um, it also led to the spin-off Puzzle Quest Challenge of the Warlords from 2007, I believe, which is one of my all-time favorite RPGs. Uh, so it's sort of been like a background noise for a lot of the games that I have played through my life. And I, a few years ago, I was trying to get motivated to do a 3MA specifically on the series, but I never quite pulled the trigger on that. But uh, uh, part of the reason that we're, we're having this discussion now is to re-motivate that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah. If, if memory serves from when we were discussing that, it's not the most accessible game anymore. Um, 
The series is somewhat difficult. The original Warlords is actually reasonably playable via uh, Internet Archive. If okay. Internet if Internet Archive is still alive when you know this show goes <laughs> Chuck up. Chuck Wendig is done with <laughs> if, it. If Western yeah. Civilization is still around when this show goes up, yeah, you yeah, can that, check it out. Yeah. Those two caveats <laughs> aside, yes, it is. It is. I think it's also fairly easy to find on Abandoned Wear. Like, obviously, there are some interface issues, but it's not a super complicated game. This is not... I call it a war game in terms of, like, it is a game about war. It is not a game about uh, diplomacy and anything beyond the barest bones. It is not about the economy beyond the barest bones. I don't even remember if there's any economy besides the more cities you have, the more gold you have in, in the first one. Um it is just moving armies, taking cities, uh, knocking out rivals, those kinds of things. But it's not a war game in the, I am playing a Gary Grigsby game and need to figure out, you know, how area of effect fire works or where my supply lines are or all those. It's, uh, it's extremely abstracted. Um, and just how can my dudes cross this river? Eat shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So... But I think, like, knowing you, the I'm looking at this, and I see the framework of a lot of things that I think we've discussed kind of being burnt out on, um, you know, since then. And I'm curious, like... What, what sorts of things? Oh, it, it, it's just so... It's just so basic down to this concept of uh you know territory control in this kind of generic looking fantasy world um yeah and i'm interested in like is there something you still hold apart about this game like not just that not just that it's something you encountered early uh or in a, in a more innocent time before like genre tropes ran everything into the ground I'm, I'm curious if there's still something you hold on to here that, that says like well actually like despite a theme that in years since has become kind of exhausted this game is still doing something pretty cool with it on on the merits um i think some of it is that is that it is so generic and that might sound counterintuitive but like it bugs me when i play a fantasy game that's sort of like here's all fantasy jam-packed into one thing but we also have a quirk or something right like uh um the you know the trend of fantasy strategy games from around 2000 or so there where uh there was like a light world and a dark world like master magic had that too but like i don't I don't care about the dark world, you know? I don't know. I, this isn't what I want. I just want to have, you know, elves fighting ogres. Um, and that's that's the sort of thing that, like, Total Warhammer has that I like. That it's it's mm-hmm. just... It's just the thing that it is, in a way. And it's not trying to remix those things. It's not trying to pretend that there's some quirk of the genre. And, like, I don't know. That's That might be an extremely subjective thing that exists primarily because I played this game but like I don't sit around and think about how we should do um god what was that game conquered kingdoms on the on 3MA right uh 
that was a probably roughly equivalent in quality fantasy war game from 88 to 90 or so. I don't remember exactly when, but uh, yeah, it, it didn't quite have that, uh, the, the pull of like the giant genericness and uh, the other thing is that there isn't really a story to, to make it to interrupt it. It's not trying to do these tropes that I am exhausted by. It's just the the map moving around. And I think if you know me that uh, you have seen me watch fantasy maps adjust over time or real world maps or just enjoy seeing how those things play out. Speaking of TJ, we really should yeah. just run the AI on that Hearts of Iron 4 game. That was wild. We should. We should. That was crazy. Uh, kind of yeah. scenario we re- we ended up with. Um, I do want to call call out Total War though for sure. Um, like Shogun Total War. If I think about like who I am as like a media person, like to some degree it's what I'm known for career wise, but it's also just on an internal level. Warcraft Two established two of the pillars of that, which are fantasy and strategy. I think Shogun Total War kind of really cemented the third one, which is history. I mean, I'm a big fan of history games today, and that is the first history game I got really, really into. Um, It was kind of coinciding with, I think, Shogun Total War came out pretty close to the when I got, you know, my first middle school history textbook and took it home and, like, read it all in a weekend. (laughs) So it was like, wait... All this stuff like actually happened like that that that's crazy. I mean, uh, like th- my love of history definitely developed around that like two thousand two thousand one um, sort of time period, uh, and and just knowing oh yeah the country the country where my anime comes from had all of these dynastic struggles with samurai and ninjas and shit like this is awesome. I'm I'm all here for this. Um, and and it was really the first. I mean, strategy in the strictest sense, strategy game that I, I played. Um, b- because, you know, RTS is, you know, a detractors might call them real-time tactics games because they're really more about tactics than strategy. Shogun Total War is the first game I played where I felt like there was an actual proper strategic layer where I was making these long-term economic decisions that had a direct impact on, you know, what kind of troops I could put on the field in the real-time battles. So if Warcraft 2 is excluded, I think Shogun Total War is probably my my uh, fulcrum of becoming who I am as a strategy gamer. Were we excluding Warcraft 2? I mean, if I'm saying hypothetically if I were to exclude Warcraft 2. I mean, we can exclude it if you want. Like... <laughs> yeah, I'd... Yeah. I think there is something uh, I too uh, mm-hmm. sometimes worry that do I actually know that about Japan or did I just read that in the way of the daimyo uh, yeah. multimedia uh-huh. companion uh, which <laughs> I'm pretty sure like was a weaves history of Japan like I think there were yeah. like 12 pages devoted to the folding of a samurai sword the metal uh-huh. uh, and yeah. folded over a thousand times sharper Rob. than anything just oh my just god just so sharp <laughs> and strong just nobody has ever made anything as good as the the Sengoku Jidai era katana ever again in human history yeah. it was the pinnacle of achievement yeah 
Um, but I, but I do think there is something that game occupies a similar a niche in, in at least one way, which is that it's kind of stripped down in that in that sense, right? Where it's not trying to because it because it's kind of a naive work because it's not really trying to top anything or compete with a genre that hasn't really been codified yet. It can just do the thing it's really good at. And where did wait 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 wait. Where did that term come from? What? Naive work. What do you mean? I've never I, heard that before and I love it. Tell me about it. <laughs> oh, um I think I think I'm misusing it now that now that I think about it. Uh oh. because obviously like naive art is when you are trying to render a subject without firsthand knowledge of that uh, of that subject, right? So it's like if um, it's like me trying to paint a picture. Imagine, imagine I could paint, sort of, okay, but then somebody is just like, uh, you know, paint, and you can't look look it up. Uh, paint a picture of you know, George, George the second or something. I don't know who George, I don't know what that dude looks like, but I could guess and I could like, yeah, here's what, here's what a King looks like. And then it's naive. Uh, but, but I think in the sense of what, what I'm trying to get with like Shogun yeah. is, and maybe to an extent with like warlords is that it's, <laughs> it's coming into a space where it's not really sure what it should be measuring itself against, right? Like where so many games that end up in the 4X space are kind of consciously looking at civilization yeah. and saying, yeah. well, how, do, how does our loop stack up to civilization? How, how, does, how does our game compare to what makes, the, how, how do our hooks look compared to that game's? Civil, uh, or, uh, amplitude does tries really really hard to never mention civilization but we know that they, we we know they're looking at it yeah well yeah no they they, they try hard to not to use the word but then uh -huh. they refer obliquely to the fact that like oh you know our competitor and there's only one because there's only one yeah. really worth speaking of um but yeah i think these are these both works to some extent that um yeah as these genres sort of start to fall into conventions you do start seeing more of those um, change-up elements that can leave you so cold or just kind of piss you off. Yeah, the the other thing I remember about Shogun was thinking 700 megabytes was an absurd amount of hard drive space for a video game. <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of funny in retrospect, yeah. Yeah, two it discs. Was. Yeah. All those so. little videos of the assassinations. Oh, God, so they're so good. Oh, they gotta bring those back. Bring no, back the FMVs. No, please, no. Yes. No. Yes. Yes. Creative no, assembly. No, and they were so funny. Especially no, any, because the way they were anything fork, but agents. And you'd have to wait. You'd have to wait to see w whether you, the mission got the good ending or the bad. Uh huh. Yeah. Anything. Anything but agents. Uh, yeah, agents. Agents are bad, but the FMV scenes are very good. Okay, so here's me. Okay. I think... There, like, as with Rowan, there's a lot of things I could pick here, but I think for the purposes of this conversation, um, I want to go to... Maybe Rowan just put 
get, uh, Gary Grigsby in my mind. That naturally leads me to Norm Coger. But uh, the Operational Art of War was a really big one for me. And I think it's not necessarily because it's a it's such a great war game. Like it is. It is a great war game. Uh it's it's one of I would argue the best of its era um provided you have a good uh scenario maker for for whatever scenario you're about to play. But when I think about it, what excited me the most, the thing that I really obsessed about with it is that even more than the game, I liked being the sort of person who would be really into the operational art of war. Like, Rowan, you're talking about Ultima the other day. I kind of wanted a game like the operational art of war to be my brand. And <laughs> I didn't think of it in those terms, but like, I loved the idea of like, oh, what do you play? Oh, uh, the operational art of war. Oh, you don't know what <laughs> operational arts are? Well, let me explain. It's not like strategy. It's not like I tactics. Have... It's an, an entire level of combat where real warfare is is taking place, uh, where, where the a... true generalship happens. I am a master of the operational arts. So, so wait, where where are we? Where are we in the life of Rob Zachney at this like point? Like middle school. Okay. All right. Uh, the... Is that? Pardon. Is that middle school? For me. Yeah. Uh, I guess I could say that. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's aligning now. So, and the, and the thing is, there, 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 there are other parts of this too. Like I, I, like, I was also still a kid who didn't get that many games, right? So the entire, like, uh, it is a wargaming toy, like, toolbox was really appealing because, okay, yeah, there's, like, you know... 16 scenarios out of the box but then you go online and there's infinite scenarios you can create your own scenarios and it has really powerful scripting options so that you can create really specific experiences uh you know in the game that are uh you know distinct to one particular phase of one particular battle you can you can figure out a way to break the game to bring those dynamics to life i loved all of that. I loved the idea that you could take one game in one system and use it to simulate, you know, a century's worth of conflict. And it took me a long time to realize that none of that was really true. Um, <laughs> like... I've talked before about the Operation Art of War has a sweet spot, um, and it, it does. Like World War Two is World War Two in the years World War One to World War Two is probably its sweet spot in terms of what it handles well. Once you start getting into later conflicts where air power becomes more precise and more important, it starts to break down a little bit. Uh, also, there's just no more nicely symmetrical wars uh, really for for the game to model as much, uh, at least among uh, you know, great powers, but, but is this the operational art of war one? Yeah, that's mostly what I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, volume two is fine, but it isn't my operational art of war. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, they, aren't they supposedly basically the same only with slight 
interface updates and more scenarios no they're the same game like 100 <laughs> percent. like it's not really an improvement it's just it's just like they expand the tool set where right. like this one has jet fighters and uh, precision munitions and helicopters and they're all implemented decently is is the way i'd put it uh but but yeah i so- i think the the thing about the operational art of war is that it was the kind of game that purported to offer a different way of relating to the topic and i was really into that so did you ever try to make your own scenarios yes uh how in depth how historical uh i became really hellbent on i would actually try to do this in steel panthers too i was really it was the 90s you know i, I, I was so into the uh western front of world war ii uh post overlord where i was just like man you know what the world needs more hedgerow scenarios that's what <laughs> that's what i need um and so now we understand why you like steel division so much yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you, that's that's some real war. All the hedgerows. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh, you just yeah. your your tank, you know, drives uh-huh. in front of a shrub and then it just blows the hell up for no reason. That's warfare, uh-huh. baby. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh yeah, so I would I would get really fixated on interestingly enough, even though it's all like high on the Stephen Ambrose stuff, uh I became really obsessed with um like Monty's push on can and would start trying to figure out ways to model the ins and outs of that particular part of the battle. Here's the problem. And this was a val- this was a valuable lesson. Uh, even though the operational out of war let you decide, okay, is a hex, uh, is a hex 50 kilometers? It could be a hex could also be like, hundred yards or something like that to make the scenario i wanted to make to to have sort of the vivid uh knife fight in a phone booth experience of hedgerow fighting you needed a scale that the operation art of war was simply not like the right one to to use uh you wanted the tactical art of war yeah but also not like what if it what if, just just slightly less operational um and and probably what i was looking for was something more like you know combat mission or something uh where you mentioned steel panthers which is what came immediately to mind yeah yeah um though i never quite got happy with how that game actually rendered hedgerows uh they're they're a weird terrain feature and uh i was never really thrilled with just like how passable terrain was in that game where like there was like there was nothing in the initial game's terrain set to stop you from driving a tank over the hedgerow and that's like the defining feature of why why that was such a like nightmarish fight uh because you literally couldn't you were you're sort of funneled into these uh you know kill zones but yeah, so I looked at the operational war, operational out of war, and I thought I could do this, and I started making it way too granular, and I got surprisingly far. Um, I started hacking certain things, like okay, there are some rivers and streams that were significant uh, 
tactical obstacles to uh, assaults. How do I model this? Okay, well, there's a special kind of river called Suez Canal in that game, and that <laughs> one is just a nightmare to cross. Like, it requires an engineering unit to cross. That seems about right. So suddenly I had all these little Suez tiles shooting through my map uh, to basically stymie, like, the, uh, you know, eastern flank of the British line, right? Which that is kind of the that is kind of the nightmare they're up against. It's all it's all carved up with river rivers and floodlands. Uh and so I was trying to bring that out. But it turns out I was probably a little overly restrictive. Uh <laughs> putting in putting in Suez Canal tiles to stand <laughs> in for streams in Normandy kind of broke the movement yeah. dynamics of the scenario. Uh and then the other thing was that because I had the scale zoomed in so tight, uh, and this was this was the other thing that was really illuminating, the operational of war, the way you would build units is via accretion, right? So if you had a uh, fire support battalion, it would be comprised of, you know, a dozen 105-millimeter howitzers, uh, maybe a half dozen rocket artillery, uh, like four times as many trucks as that to haul the haul the guns around and haul the ammo. Uh, you know, there'd be a headquarters platoon, there would be rifles, all that stuff. And the way the game worked was that if you piled enough of those factors together you would have something roughly equivalent to its historical, like in, in terms of its like historical performance. And that worked decently well for like when you're talking about the battalion regimental uh, brigade scale, you know, where those are your game pieces and sort of uh, having all that granularity implied, but not necessarily um, something you have to worry about, right? Where like it's still, it's still added up into an easily abstractable number. Um, it turns out that was kind of the sweet spot where I was building the scenario. The game would start to fall apart because it would turn out that like in these combats, you would get weird outcomes where like a machine gun platoon would in the course of a skirmish, um, just lose all its machine guns and nothing else. It would be fine. But like somehow all the heavy machine guns would just get like blown away in that battle and then it wasn't a machine gun platoon anymore and you would immediately feel like well this is totally hosed and then you were in the back end trying to be like okay well how can i make the replacements work but it couldn't change the fact that like the game was throwing weird results where like certain types of units were just getting like completely wasted because when you reduced the numbers of units down so far you started getting spikier results right like the operational art of war was about via that accretion uh, smoothing over the spikiness of the individual stats of each component of the unit you were adding. But at the scale I was doing it, the game didn't make any sense. Didn't make any sense as a World War II game. Didn't make any sense as a game. It was just um, you know a complete a complete melee. And I got to the point where I had a pretty beautiful detailed hacked together version of uh you know the eastern part of the normandy campaign 
the scale was completely wrong. Um, it was all fucked up with Suez tiles. Uh, my <laughs> order of battle for each side was just totally fucked. Um, and I had that fucked horrible up realization. Fucked Suez tiles, the Rob Zachty story. You know, yeah. you, you, like, you, 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 you describe this as, like, a hacky way to model modern warfare, but I actually tried to create, like, World War One scenarios in the Warcraft 3 map editor. Where I would like tweak the range and the uh, splash damage area of like steam tanks, and then I'd have like dwarven riflemen in trenches as like the infantry, and like use the mortar teams and like change their rate of fire to turn them into machine guns. So, yeah, the the like trying to model actual warfare scenarios with games that are not really designed to do it very well uh, is something I'm pretty familiar with. Yeah. Yeah, and but I think for me, like yeah. the way it ended yeah. was, I was just like, fixing this will require undoing all my work, and that yeah. broke me. Like I couldn't. I had gotten just good enough with the tools to build something uh -huh. off a clean canvas. Editing a completed work was just. I was like, how could anyone do this? Like, oh yeah, what what am I supposed to do from here? And probably the next version of this will still suck. Uh, so I sort of slowly backpedaled away from scenario design, but I, but I think it did, it did show up like the promise of the operational art of war was always kind of hypothetical, right? Like if you tried to push it to what its limits were, you would discover that at those extremes, the game didn't work very well at all. Um, but if you treated it as something with sort of a narrow performance band where it's like. It can be regiments or like maybe on the Eastern Front of World War II, it can be divisions. But like you need some big units that can absorb a fair amount of punishment before they stop behaving like themselves. Um, and once I realized that, it did kind of make me realize that the operational art of war was not quite the sandbox I thought. And more than that... Um, it was maybe not as obscure or interesting a war game as I thought. You know, to go back to what like appealed to me, I loved the idea of like this is a grognard ass war game. This is this is the real shit. This is the operational art of war. Kids my age don't even know what operational warfare is. I didn't even know <laughs> until I bought this game. Uh, and then once I started to realize, like, okay, but. It might also just be really unsexy, but not necessarily particularly realistic or challenging. That was kind of eye-opening, too. Mm -hmm. So where did you go after? Uh, I think... If you want to think about it, I, I have a different direction to go. No, no I mean, I, I have an answer, I think. Okay, go for it. Uh, I think the next war game that got its hooks into me that way was probably Take Command Second Manassas. Because then it was like, it was a lot like Sid's Gettysburg, which is very close to being one of my answers for this question, right? Like, in terms of things that I saw, and I was just like, hot damn, that's it. That's me. That game. That is me. Um, right down to the corny southern accents in Sid Meier's Gettysburg. Poor Harry Go on into town to get those shoes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, they will come booming down the Cash Town Pike. <laughs> uh, but uh. 
I think Take Command Second Manassas started to get its hooks into me because it was um, all about it, it was about bringing to life that part of the stuff I'd read about in histories where like I had sort I was sort of at this point where like to a degree there's something even fallacious about the idea that the operational art of war that perspective where you're pushing these units around with like a perfectly clear map uh, and you have this like complete command and control that seemed cool but also I started to realize that still ain't it like that's not really uh you know when you read about the history that's not really how these campaigns their commanders conceived of them so how did how did it look to people uh and take command second manassas kind of filled that spot where in terms of maneuvering units around and giving them like direct commands it wasn't too complicated the interface could be a little fussy but uh it wasn't too complicated but its entire thing was hey you aren't a godlike commander at all you are just one commander here among many surrounded by AI commanders and you don't know what they're going to do and you don't know what the situation is. And so you will have the experience that you will read about, but you won't really understand until you live it in a game like this where like you see a Confederate regiment come out of the woods on your flank and you think, okay, well, I'll just see them off. I'll move this this regiment over here and, you know, get, get in a shootout with them and uh, continue pushing over here. And no, that was your warning. Like that, that, that regiment was the tip of like AP Hill's entire division, right? Like coming out of those woods. And now you've got a regiment between you and like 13,000 Confederates. Um, but to you, it just looks like some dudes hanging out in the woods and you have no idea what's coming until it's too late because they will just start filing out and it's not like they appear all at once it's like okay there's a few more oh there's artillery and unless you know the orders of battle well enough to realize like shit wait what regiment is that that's not supposed to be here that's a totally different unit than the one i've been fighting if you don't like read those tea leaves uh it's gonna spiral away fast likewise you can turn around and it turns out that like while you've been winning over here, the AI has completely shit the bet over there, and now you're totally hosed, even though you fought really well. Um, yeah, so that was probably where I went next, which was probably more of a experiential, like almost RPG like approach. Not, not not in terms of like genre, right? But in terms of like just trying to locate you as a character with a perspective in that world. That's kind of where I went right. next. So. Dang, I have like three different directions to go. First, on that account, I really wanted to try to get into the SSI Napoleonic Wars. I don't remember. I think it was called Great Battles of Napoleon. Uh, but that that was that tried to deal with things by having you give your like general assignments to your division commanders, and then depending on whether they were assholes or not, the division commanders might do them or not. <laughs> Uh, which I, I liked the idea of. I just never quite clicked with the game for some reason, probably because it was Napoleonic and I had never uh, really gotten a good firm grasp on that. Maybe if it had been Civil War, I could have done that. But um, the big direction I wanted to go was uh, 
the the idea of the, the the mega game, the game that can become you, the game that has everything that you want. Yeah. Uh, I mean mm-hmm. that that holds a lot of pull for us. Like the part of the reason we like strategy games is we like these big ideas. We want. Uh, I mean, becoming a critic hurts this because, like, obviously now we have to stay on board with most things but in general there is kind of a dream of hitting the game that is exactly the game you want to play for as long as you can and the more ambitious the more promising it is even though like you might intellectually know that ambition is not necessarily a good thing although as a kid maybe you don't but uh just yeah the seeing the scale that you could just deal with this one thing for a long time and Mine was actually a game that I had, or a game related to a series that I had considered for this, which is the SSI Gold Box uh, role-playing games based on uh, second edition AD&D. They released, well, first of all, I instantly found an attachment to those games. Like when I went to the computer game rental store, I was like, there's 15 of these. I want to play them all. I still then, think like, that way, which is not a good way to think. I'm still like, man, oh, one of these days, I'm just going to binge a whole lot of Assassin's Creed. That sounds like fun. Oh, yeah. that's. <laughs> I literally did that. I bought the first four Assassin's Creed games in a Steam bundle and played them back to back. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's a, a way that the brain can work. But, uh, you know, knowing that that's something to tamper down a little, um, you know, say, hey, I still need to play Long War 2. I can't get into Assassin's Creed until then. Uh, that's that's an important way to think about things. Um, but yeah, just like seeing this like mass of mostly fantasy games, some science fiction games, uh, and then they were like, you know, they were basic late 80s, early 90s RPGs, which had like a uh, three-dimensional tile-based dungeon and then some tactical combat. It was... Probably not the first tactical combat I had had. That was probably Ultima, but Ultima, I mostly played six before anything else, and six had combat be really, really, really downplayed. Um, whereas the Gold Box games combat was a key thing. So just like this idea of moving pieces around, having them in the right spots, uh, lining up things for your mages to drop their fireballs, using your warrior. We didn't call them tanks at the time, but using your warriors at a position where you're weaker units would be protected all those th- those little components of it the paper dolls of building the, these characters that they look pretty um that those were all things that uh attracted me there but then in i believe 94 ssi was like hey we churned these things out a dime a dozen what if we let our players churn them out a dime a dozen and they put out forgotten realms unlimited adventures which was the creation kit for uh, these games and I went into it being like this is my dream I I want to play these games forever I want to create these games I'm a good writer I could be a game designer this is all things that could work and you know it was actually a pain in the ass and by trying to make it be universal they filed off a lot of this the things that made it interesting it was also Forgotten Realms and not Dragonlance so obviously it's bullshit um <laughs> So, yeah, like this idea that there is this super game out there that we can get to and uh, 
uh, when, then we can stop. Like, we can retire. We can stop our search. Lay down our arms. Uh, okay, so of course, that actually, like, the minute you start going this direction, I kind of wanted to ask. Does the fact that on some level we still want this, even though we know it's a an irrational, unreasonable, and maybe even shamefully silly desire, <laughs> does that still haunt what us as say? critics a little bit? <laughs> um, to some yeah. degree, yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm... Like, in terms of the ultimate game, I, I, I mean, I literally said on Twitter, like, yesterday... Like, Pathfinder Kingmaker is approaching my dream game from one direction. Crusader Kings 3 is approaching it from the other direction. And then Mountain Blade, Bannerlord, like, fired an arrow into the middle somewhere and it landed. I don't know. We're still looking for it. Like, it, I, I do feel like I, I think about games in that way. In, like, how, how could this move closer to my idea of an, an ideal game which is you know it is a silly idea of that that like everything you like about video games could somehow exist simultaneously and without any like design dissonance in a single experience um i don't know if i would say it taints me as a critic necessarily um i think you said haunts haunts okay that that was that uh, yeah it it does it does because it is something that's always on my mind when I'm playing you know Crusader Kings or Mountain Blade or Pathfinder Kingmaker it's like man I wish all this other stuff from this other game that I love was in this game because then it would be the perfect game um, yeah I do find myself thinking that fairly often and I uh, I I think it's like it's a pressure from two different directions. So first of all, as a critic, it's a pain in the ass to just want to settle down with the handful of games that you want because unfortunately people are still releasing games. <laughs> and like this show <laughs> is going to get pretty boring eventually. It might take a while at this point, but this show is going to get pretty boring if we stop paying attention to anything new and just play the one to five games that we happen to love the most. Um, we should do another Three Kingdoms show. See, I, this is what I'm rules. saying. I think the time is right. <laughs> I mean, this is the 500th episode. We could just drop in a like. We're all ready to. We're all ready to hang it up, man. You know, eight princes, <laughs> not so bad. Announcing our retirement, right? Right this here is, now. This yeah. is a Three Kingdoms. This is a yeah, Three th Kingdoms podcast now. Yeah. Total War Three Kingdoms. That's that's the high water mark. Uh, we're done. Uh, why do we need to even discuss strategy games anymore? So, I, but yeah, here's you know. so, so like so I, I had to get the other side too. But so like so from this one side, like you know, I talk with uh, Dan Starkey sometimes, and they're like, I've never played uh, uh, any of the expansions for Total Warhammer, and I'm like, what on earth are you doing? Like, those are the reasons to play the game, right? And yeah. Like, no, those are super inefficient things to do in a pragmatic way. Like, if you're not getting paid to pay, play those, this is not an especially wise thing to do. Um, and that's, that's a really annoying thing. 
Um, and this, this is also true for just anyone who wants to keep up with the idea of strategy games or games in general or whatever. Like how many people are playing The Last of Us 2 out of obligation? Um, but then from the other side, I think that it haunts us in that we know that we can never get it, but we always want to chase it. Like I made that joke to Rob about finally playing Long War 2, but Long War 2 got superseded by the XCOM expansion that Long War 2, the Long War 2 developers never wanted to do. So like there's already like this split of XCOM 2, which is a game that I have like 500 hours in that could be a game I played forever, depending on how I dealt with it. But uh, like just the knowledge that these things are always going to be slightly messed up and they're always going to be slightly off and that that's just the way that things are, that Chris Crawford is never going to actually succeed at making Star Citizen the dream, right? <laughs> um, that, like, we're stuck with this impulse of wanting to, to I don't know, um, fully envelop the games into ourselves or have ourselves be fully enveloped into the games in a way that will never actually happen and we know it, but we still want it. I think for me, something that um, the quest for the forever game is the way this has come up just just tonight is in some ways like ah when I was when I was a when I was a youngling uh, before Anakin killed me uh, <laughs> when I was a kid uh, <laughs> like having these formative gaming experiences I did think you could create a system that would generate infinite fun. And that was only important really because options were limited, right? Like it would be way more efficient if the game I got for Christmas uh, was still occupying me by the next Christmas. That would have mm -hmm. been uh, pretty pretty much ideal. And, and, and some games did do that, right? Like uh, why do I talk about TIE Fighter so much? In part because that game gave you a fuckload of pretty solid expansions. They got silly eventually, but like, if you wanted to like live your life as a Imperial Tie pilot for a year or more, you could do that. Um, but I like the, it was always it was always a desire that queued up disappointment, right? Like I've talked about a formative experience of mine was the sequel or follow-up to Fields of Glory, which was American Civil War, uh, designed by Adrian Earle, which was going to do a strategic-level uh, Civil War game where you could like build railroads and factories and engage in diplomacy with European powers. Uh, but then also you would have tactical battles with, um, you know, th 3D, well, Sprite, 3D battlefields of sprite-based like Union and Confederate armies. And I thought, that's it. That's the game. That's the game I want to play, and that's going to be perfect. And when it came out in like, you know, mid-90s or whatever, uh, the early DOS era, um, the... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Hey, now. <laughs> Sorry, TJ. <laughs> uh, but, when, but when it came out, it kind I'm, of sucked. Baby. because like I am baby. It didn't, yeah. it didn't work. And the technology of the time probably couldn't even support it, even if the design was, was on a firmer footing. But I think now I look at so many games, I think as a critic I encounter this again and again, and I kind of see it. 
I see so many games that do kind of seem to be aspiring to be that forever game. And oftentimes I've come to the conclusion that trying to be the forever game is often in tension with the odds of you being a good game for the afternoon, right? And so I think one of the things that, like one of the ways this does end up haunting me as a critic is that when I do encounter these games that are just trying to do so much, I get almost disproportionately exhausted because through no fault of that game's own, it is now conjuring up memories of disappointments and attempts to sort of cobble together a positive experience out of something completely unwieldy and uh, just kind of a slack experience. It's now conjuring up stuff that's going back 20 years, right? It is touching um, sore points that have been there since I was a kid. And that's how I think that sort of ends up coming up again and again for me. Um, that doesn't mean I think that doesn't mean I think I'm necessarily overly harsh. Like I, I think I, I genuinely do believe that if you put ship design in your space forex, <laughs> uh, you deserve to be sent to Saint Helena. That is just an objective truth. The fact I've been playing and hating games like that since I was a kid is immaterial. It's just a bad idea. But I do probably hate it even a little bit more because it produces such a feeling of, oh, shit, here we go again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, ask me how many monster hunters I have that I have put like 45 minutes into tops. <laughs> more than one? Yeah. More than one. I believe it's three. It could be four. Are you yeah. always like this one? This next one is the one. This one's this one's for me. No, it's that, okay, I've heard a bunch of people say a bunch of good things. Uh, it's finally cheap enough, or I'm getting it for free for some reason, or whatever. I get it, and I'm just like, oh, God. What <laughs> if I become a monster hunter person? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I feel like it, it, it is very much like a sort of like ambition above is it is it actually fun like it's losing track of is this do i have the fundamentals of strategy game design that i'm building upon here or am i just trying to shoot the moon with no thought to what has worked previously can be you know can can lead to that kind of game there's also you know more like what you were talking about with ship design where it's like it's something that's just like it's been around for so long that people feel like they need to have it in there but then you know i would ask but do you but do you was it ever a good feature uh in the first place or do you just think it was because it was attached to a game that was influential for you um but but maybe that 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 game was influential in spite of of this thing so um i'm not exactly i'm not exactly certain <laughs> what i'm actually getting at here but uh well i mean yeah let me put it this way like uh -huh. you love your paradox games i do 
but I also burned out on them super hard. Like there was a point in time where I was like, I don't hate Crusader Kings, but it is the last game in the universe I want to play right now. Because I put over two thousand hours into it, and I was just like, all right, like I, I I'm I'm kind of done with Crusader Kings too at this point. So sure, but like let's say let's say <laughs> yeah, sorry, uh, let's say that we get like a fantastic UBI, the COVID. Uh, COVID ruins the economy. You have nothing better to do but stay inside and, like, play the five core Paradox games uh, in whatever sequential order you wanted to. Mm -hmm. It is economically viable and socially viable for you to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, how would that make you feel? Um... Like, I just have unlimited time to just play video games and don't have to worry about money or anything. Um, yeah, I mean, you could get extra money if you did reviews. Maybe that's yeah. helpful, but it's not absolutely necessary. How would it make me feel, I guess? I I mean, I feel like it would, it would eventually end in some sort of point of ennui where I'm like, you know, I... I just want something different you know i th i think that is it is ultimately folly to want a forever game because you know we we crave new experiences and no matter how good how like exactly my thing any individual game ever ends up being i'm eventually going to want something different like if someone said to me especially in some past years like when Heroes of the Storm was viable, although I am, I do like May a lot. That's a that's an issue. <laughs> um, yeah. If so, if someone like offered me, you know, the ability to economically survive if I were playing my preferred five games, which I sort of am in now, and I'm trying to work out how I'm dealing with, you know, staying on track with the discourse. Uh, or being prepared to do this show or whatever, uh, I would probably take that because, like, I don't know, there is just so much stress with trying to feel like I have to keep up. And yeah, a single forever game, maybe not, but, like, the idea that there are enough games that I could put together a reasonably straightforward puzzle or put the pieces of the puzzle together in a way where, like, you know, I have Mortal Kombat for when I want to play an action game. I have uh, Total War Three Kingdoms for when I want to Could really get to the bottom so. of this endless legend question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get um, real good at endless legend, and then I'm going to figure out what if, I think of it. I'm going to yeah. get real good at figuring out if it's possible to get real good at endless legend. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah like... I think I would take that because I think the stress of trying to like keep up with everything, know everything is 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 higher than the ability to believe that there isn't some kind of cocktail that I could get. Now I don't think there is one single game that I would do that for, or maybe not even like you know the five paradox game cocktail, which is a pretty strong cocktail given that they're all roughly the same. Uh, I mean, not roughly the same, but they're all, like, within the same genre. We were going to let it uh, pass. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, two of them are bad and three of them are great. But, uh, no, like, 
the one that always tells there, the there. truth came out before the one that is great. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like just the, the appeal of retiring to the right amount of them, even though I know that like I'm not going to be able to combine Dynasty Warriors with Total War Three Kingdoms, and that's okay. Uh, it's it's strong enough game on its own that I can live with that. Like uh, I I feel like. At some level, yes, there is that consistent push for the ambitious super game, especially with things like Kickstarter and especially with things like uh, fucking space games. Uh, but <laughs> but I do no. think there are, there are plenty of games that have managed to get that I could play this forever kind of feel while maintaining their ambition to a point where, okay, it's not forever, but I really do love this and would play this with most of my spare time that I would like to use on video games. And maybe that's just the three kingdoms is that good. Right. I, <laughs> I mean, that's I not an entirely idle thing. Right. Cause I've had this too. Like I have had this problem where a lot of times I am in the mood to play a strategy game, but what is it? It's three kingdoms or something, something else old and familiar. Right. But like the thought of being pulled away from that is less exciting. And like there are games out there that are rich enough that I think, you know, what would be more interesting to me than becoming versed in the gist of a newer strategy game would be to just really get all the way on my bullshit with this older game and really just like appreciate what's there and pick it apart a little bit and see where eventually it breaks. Cause still for me, it doesn't. It still holds up pretty, pretty damn well. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that is a that is a very real thing that is a tension at this point in my career and my relationship with these games. Is that in terms of what would fire me up the most to play? A lot of times, it is the same like half dozen games that are coming to mind, like. Uh, you know, when we were having more regular uh, RTS game sessions, not Paradox game sessions, but RTS sessions uh, with uh, some, of the, some of the backers, I mean, when I was probably having the most fun with that, we were basically alternating between Steel Division, um, Rise of Nations, and Northgard for like a year. And that was it. That was all I needed. You know what I mean? Like when it, whenever it came to like, well, should we play something new? And I would kind of have a feeling of like, yeah, but there's still so much I want to do and try and see in these games. Um, and I think this is, you know, if John were here, um, I think this is v something very present in tabletop discourse where you have like in people who are really into tabletop games, they have their old favorites, but I think, a lot of the tabletop space has become similarly um, driven by the new and sort of, you know, rushing to check out like, hey, what's happening with this game? Uh, and I suspect there's a lot of people who, with their tabletop groups, also have that tension of like, well, yeah, we've played this a million times, but it's always fucking great. Um, mm -hmm. why should we like take an entire game day to learn this new thing when we're not even sure we're going to like it? 
Uh, and I think that that is a tension that starts to become more acute as your time gets pulled in more different directions and you do start thinking about uh, not necessarily the forever game, but just the just the trustworthy, trustworthy old stalwart. Yeah, I mean, I, I, in regards to tabletop, that's very true with me where like, I'm like, oh, do I actually want to buy this new system or do I just want to strip the setting for parts and run it in fate? Because I know that's the system that I like and works well for me and for my, uh, for my friend group. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I like... I still feel like I'd get bored. And I think Crusader Kings 2 is the best illustration of that because that is the closest anything has ever come to being my forever game. And I just go through periods where, like, I don't even want to look at it. I don't even want to see the desktop icon. Like, I am so... I've had my fill of Crusader Kings at this moment to such a degree that, like, I like I can't even think about... The- the Simpsons yeah. Moe and Barney meme of TJ throwing <laughs> Crusader Kings 2 out of the bar. Crusader Kings 3 yeah. appears behind him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe Crusader Kings 3 will be it. Maybe I'll be like, okay, there is a such thing as a forever game and this is this is mine. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I definitely understand the pressure as a game's writing professional that like, oh, I have to stay on top of a lot of games that I might not give a second thought to otherwise but even if i had total freedom i still feel like i would want something new maybe every couple of years to to just keep it interesting i mean it's also that the games are being designed this way and it's less so the strategy games which sort of always have but like after thinking about what i said like if i just retired to five games Mm -hmm. one of those games i would probably say should be final fantasy 14 which I have played a decent amount of. I've gotten to like level 30, 35. It's extremely good. It's a couple an extremely times. good game. Yeah. I've, oh, I'm aware of the quality of it. I wrote up a preview about it saying <laughs> this is the first game since World of Warcraft to understand what massively multiplayer games yep. were supposed to be. Yep. Um, like, I, all of, I mean, not all of my friends, but most of my friends play it. But I look at Final Fantasy fourteen and say, if I play this, I'm not playing anything else. And... I feel like I want to play the other things either to keep up for this podcast, basically, at this point, um, or because I legitimately enjoy those games. And, like, having that... Having those other super games hanging over, having your Warframes and your Monster Hunters and your Final Fantasies... Uh, well, Final Fantasy XIV, it's, it, that's... I guess eleven is still going, but those are the, those are the real options there. Um... It's like, that's imposing. It's like, because those are so big, I want to stick with my comfort games, even though I know that I would like them, or it's a very safe bet that I would like them. Um, yeah, there's just... The, the games are too damn big. Episode 500, hurt. everybody. <laughs> Stop making video games. This is it. We got to 500 episodes. Strategy games are over. This is the end of history. Uh, just stop. Yeah, we're, we're done. Just, uh, just keep cranking just, out yeah. those uh, Three Kingdoms expansions, and we're good. Yeah. We're good. Let's wait till September 1st. Let's wait for Crusader Th- Kings 3 to come out, and then let's just call it done. Let's just be like, let's all collectively agree. 
Uh, this is this is the word strategy games has left upon the world, and uh, yeah, it's, right. over. Yeah, it's over. like every season we can vote for a new game that we want to see. Like if we're like we need <laughs> we need another Civil War tactics game, that's what we need. Then yeah. we'll vote for it, and people can like submit their pitches to us, and yeah. we can say, okay, you're funded. Go on and try it. Yeah, we're gonna have five year plans. Uh, it's going to be a planned economy for strategy games going forward. Um, yeah. No, too much I, I am really looking. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to the other parts of this because I want to see if it ends up with uh, three moves ahead retiring on 500. <laughs> <laughs> always, always a chance. Um, we're we're all so tired. But what We've been if three moves ahead for so long? But what yeah. if Grand Tactician Civil War is good? That's good. Like. We we got we got till September first. That's coming in the summer. But Rob, <laughs> but Rob, you still have to play Gary Grigsby Civil War. Do I though? Couldn't you just tell me what it's like? I. It's simple. <laughs> it is easy to play. Let me pull this back up. I feel like I've. I think I've looked at this before. And I feel like you were lying. Oh man, I remember oh. the nightmare of trying to go back and uh, playing the uh, Talonsoft Battlegrounds series. <laughs> um, no, no, boy, no. that the boy's that interface nightmare. <laughs> All right, we we should probably end the show and then talk our yeah. shit. All right, uh, so <laughs> thanks for thanks for. Depressing the shit out of me uh, for episode five hundred. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, to, to our to for. our upcoming retirement, uh, to to yeah. a life of games and leisure, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> this time next year. All right, guys, mm-hmm. uh, we will call it there, and yeah, let's see if the other panelists uh, still have some gas in the tank. I hope they do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we apparently we need new blood, possibly literally. Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel, this app. Peter's yeah. a new Patreon backer. Yeah, yeah. We we do, we need we if if you want to be a blood boy or blood girl for the three MA cast, uh, so that we can siphon your vital essence uh, to prolong our uh, our our youthfulness and spirit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just let us know. All right. Um, yeah. I'm gonna stop recording now, and uh, TJ okay. added out the creepy bits. All right, and I'm here with Troy who got this entire uh, ridiculous affair started 500 episodes ago. Well, I forget. How did we end up coming down on the timing? Like, the, the famous Lost Pilot episode, uh, Troy. Yeah. I forget. Is that part of the official numerology of the show? It is still considered episode one. We start with episode two. Okay. Uh, so 500 episodes, one of which is lost, uh, like tears in the rain. I mean, I I, um, I think I have a copy of it somewhere, but I mean, it's but it's missing an audio track. It's missing uh, Julianne Murdoch's audio track. For those of you who are new to the show, back then it was Bruce Garrick, uh, myself, Tom Chick, and uh, Julianne Murdoch, uh, all critics who I knew and respected when we started it, and we recorded a show about um, uh, Armageddon Empires which is an indie, weird, uh, weird indie apocalyptic game. And Julian's audio track just did not stick, did not record. And it was just the one track that I just recorded Skype. It was no fancy audio editing stuff like we do now. Um, 
and his audio just did not get recorded somehow. So there's a lot of gaps in the show where, you know, Vic Davis, the designer, is saying things to Julian. And then there's like, we could cut those silent bits out, but then it just seems like Vic's talking to nobody. And it's just really, really weird. Uh, but yeah, that is the Lost show. Um, and then we moved right into episode two. Um, yeah, 500 episodes ago. That is a long time. It's almost, I mean, it's more than 10 years because we haven't done a show a week. It's even hard, yeah. to, it's even hard to do uh, three shows a month at this point. Um, but it gets over 10 years ago uh, for moves ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk about before three moves ahead, though. Let's talk about Troy oh, Goodfellow, God. portrait of the podcaster, the strategy maven as a young man. Uh, one of the things we're talking about is like, where did we come from? Like, what is the game? Not necessarily our favorite from when we were young, but like you can sort of point to and be like, oh, that had resonance and like lasting effects on like me as a person or me as a critic. You've posed this question and I thought I had a really easy answer. Um, Then talking to their guys and listening to them use a bit in our discord about uh, how they want to answer this question. And it's really, really kind of hard for me. Uh, My big computer game blossoming happened to be my, my undergraduate years in university uh, which were 1989 to 1993, which was kind of the golden age uh, for computer strategy games. You have in that period, you have SimCity, you have Civilization, you have Populous, you have Sim Earth, you have Warlords, you have all of these great games coming out in that very small frame of time. Um, and all of them, of course, had an impact. I mean, I came into university uh, with not a lot of uh, computer experience. I mean, I played some adventure games when I babysat my niece and nephew because my sister had a computer. <coughs> so we played King's Quest and we go through Space Quest together and all that. And that was fun and fine. Um, but then I show up at university with, you know, these proper, you know, I don't want to say gaming computers because this is, what's a gaming computer in 1989? 386, I guess. Uh, and someone had a 486 a few years later and, oh boy, that was something. Um and most of these games were pirated, of course. Uh, so we have to figure them out without manuals. And I was going through a lot of flight sims at the time. That was also a golden age for flight sims. Um, you know, F-15 and F-19 and LHX Attack Sharper and Apache and all this stuff. And I was really into that sort of thing. Because, um, you know, you get fly the plane, things go boom. Um, but I was always interested in history and I was interested in politics. I was doing a degree in political science. And you know, one of the games that I think stuck with me, both as something that I think it's not the type of game I play a lot now, uh, but it really hit me when I played it. And that is, uh, I'm stuttering so I'm so tired, Harpoon. Now, Harpoon is a air naval war game. Uh, it came out in 1988, I think. Um, it was like four different battle sets. Uh, the first one was very much set up as NATO versus the Warsaw Pact, which became increasingly irrelevant as the 90s started. Of uh, course. But in 1988, uh, this was still a thing. Yeah, there's Glastos and Perestroika, but still the Reds are out there. Um, and it was a kind of game that would appeal to a guy in his late teens, early 20s, who, you know, he'd read A Red Storm Rising and Hunt for Red October and uh, the Hackett uh, World War III books, which came out in the late 70s, those 
or early 80s, forget when they came out. Did you ever read those? General Hackett. No, what are they? General, General Hackett, he's this Cold War, British Cold Warrior, and he wrote a couple of books about what the Third World War is going to look like. And they're very much, you know, written as accounts of the war from, like, uh, the near future. You know, looking back on, oh, it's a good thing the South Africans were there to defend us against the communist other Africans. Um, very into the hardware and the effects of a nuclear explosion over Minsk and these sorts of things. Uh, they're kind of a fact-based... Uh, they're, they're, they're Tom Clancy books without the plot, which I know is going pretty far, saying, you know, Tom Clancy's book has a plot, but it's really just, you know, accounts of the history. And I, I, like I read fake, the, oral fake oral history? Yeah, it's like, just like a fake history uh, sort of thing. It's sort of like a, 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 a War of the Worlds type thing. Only it's set like in or Philip Roth, um, the thing he did about uh, the Nazis in America, th that sort of thing. Only it's all about the military. It's you know it's not about characters. It's about weapons. It's about uh, what the war is going to look like. But written as a documentary uh, type thing, as a news account. And you know, so you're reading that, and the uh, so, you, uh, you, so you get interested in things like wow, you know, what can an F fourteen do? Um, what is an Akula hunter killer submarine? Um, there are all these sub games coming out, like 688 attack sub is also in that uh, time frame. And Harpoon is this game that is in love with its weapons. I mean, it's, it is a game about, uh, where you learn things like all the different types of, all the different types of stupid aircraft carriers and the difference between a flogger and a flanker and a fencer, all the NATO code names for uh, Soviet aircraft. And it is a type of game that has always had an attraction to me for some reason. It's probably one reason why I connected so much with something like Combat Mission, which is about the love of tanks. Why uh, the Yugen uh, air land battle war game series even though I'm not very good at it, has spoken to me in a way. It's one reason why I really want to play the Command Modern Operation games. And even though I keep bouncing off them very, very hard, I cannot figure why I can't, why I can't play them. Because Harpoon has this place in my, you know, fainted, my faded memories as this game that's, oh, you can make games about war that are interesting. You can make games that are about, uh, that can model different simulations and it's all in real time it's all you know you can speed up the simulation or slow it down but the, one of the battle sets is about the convoys so if you want to do you could do a second by second convoy run from like new york to london and it would take days to play it but you could do that uh you know and i know people who play you know the their flight sims who do the real the real-time flight sims domestic flights transatlantic and those are the real weirdos um but Harpoon had this affection for reality. At least it tried to. Because once the Cold War ended, all the battle sets that came after got increasingly unhinged. But again, in a Tom Clancy kind of way, you would read the mission briefings, and it's like, well, now that the Tsar is back in Moscow... Of course. Or, you know, these proto-wars between... Uh, Pakistan and India, and they're using, uh, they're, it's all been masterminded by some secret Russian cabal. 
Uh, oh wow! So they went full like the Larry Bond spec fiction direction. Yeah, I went absolutely all all of the battle sets after the first one, which are just your typical Cold War goes hot thing. They have to invent a reason for Soviet weapons to face American weapons. Um, and they could have gone, you know, the command modern operations route and just you know set up a plausible, plausible future, uh, just plausible reason for this particular thing to happen. They went all out, and all the battles are kind of connected. You can play them from each side, but this is there's this weird fan alt fiction, like alternate history, going through all the scenarios all the way through. So it's it's a delight to read just how much batshittery was going on through the designers' heads to justify a reason why they could just say, "Oh, you know, the Ukraine left uh, the Soviet Union, and now the Russians want it back." But no, the Tsar wants it back. It's a czarist thing here. This is, you know, the return of Russian authoritarianism, which isn't totally, totally wrong or totally off base, I guess, given uh, what we know about where Moscow is now. But it is just kind of this delightful. It starts with, you know, Tom Clancy, Red Storm Rising, and ends with Tom Clancy posting on Yahoo News groups. It is just an absolute joyride all the way through and then you do get you know the things that as a canadian we love you know the right in the early late 80s early 90s the canadian frigate program is going we're building all these new frigates oh there are frigates you can play the canadian frigates uh the 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 city class the halifax class uh in this game wow isn't that neat um you can have sea kings that work instead of ours. Submarines that don't <laughs> submarines that don't catch fire, unlike ours. Uh, all of these wonderful uh, things, and it's just that love of equipment, that love of. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not a rivet counter, and I mean, I'm not one of these guys who's going to go on a message board and post about Panthers versus Shermans. Um, but I've always had this weird, perverse fascination with machines of war, not in a sadistic fanboy kind way but I think a lot of that comes from my early experiences with Harpoon and how that that has certainly affected how I approach games like uh, even things like uh, Operation Art of War, Age of Rifles these things which are just uh, add the techno- add all the weapons together and come up with a number um, and certainly you know my love of combat mission comes down to okay I, I, I press the random scenario generator and I get crap tanks. Okay, what do I do with a T-26? Uh, Germans are coming. How do I position this thing so I get the most out of it before it blows up? Because it's going to blow up on me. All of this stuff uh, certainly comes from that. So I think Harpoon is the game. That, I mean, that, that's, you know, the early A. That's I was playing it in 89. Then, you know, right after that, <coughs> my brain just explodes with, Things I did not even know were possible. Things like civilization, things like populace, uh, which have certainly affected how I think about games. And I think those are types of games I like more than uh, love letters to tanks and planes. Uh, but that that part at least never gone away. Um, it it's probably not. I, I am one of those people who will play Hearts of Iron Four and be really invested in the building of the industry and designing yes. new weapons and producing the new planes. And then the war starts and it's like, okay, I'll play this for a bit, but I really want to get, I really want to get this new plane model into development or I want to design a new modification on this tank. I put a flamethrower on that thing. 
How long will it take me to produce and outfit my units with that? That's kind of how I play Hearts of Iron. That's probably tied to my weapons thing. I'm not going to be playing Europa Universalis saying, woohoo, brand new musket. But if you give me an excuse to mess around with uh, air wings and uh, motorized divisions, I have no interest in designing ships, really. That goes back to my whole don't design spaceships, don't design battleships, unless it's like Unless the game is about that. Uh, of course, yeah. there are quite a few. But that, I, I just love the... I love sending out new planes. I like test flying new planes. I like. I mean, Harpoon wasn't a great game if we go back and play it. It's very easy to cheese, especially as the Soviets. You just load up your badgers and bears and you fire your missiles and they'll hit. You don't even have to bother with a lot of the smaller planes most of the time. Um... But it is probably the seminal game in understanding my own personal understanding for the the darkest things I like about games are like the weird. I can get I can get like I mean the the Yugen War games. I would just love the oh my god there's pole there's a new Polish unit design look at that, um that's fantastic uh and um Steel Division same thing. Uh, you know, designing the perfect division to make it the most out of my points. And a lot of that love of the equipment has come from Harpoon. Yeah, I think there is something... So I think a lot of strategy games and a lot of the stuff we talk about on the podcast also has a managerial cast mm. to it. And I think there's a there's a type of there's something implied by a certain type of war game or strategy game where it is about taking these tool sets and seeing like, OK, well, what is the proper way to utilize these tools? Right. Like these may not be the ultimate units of their class, but there is a way to make them useful. There is a way to deploy these and fold them into the overall force structure. I'm the same way with Hearts of Iron. Like, you know, what you just described, I love that same stuff. Um, for me, like one of the big complaints I have about Hearts of Iron 4 is I just want those, um, I want those like Army, Navy, Air Force points sooner uh, hmm. so that I can play around with like unit templates more. Um, because I am, because I, I really want to build the thing and then see how how would it perform how would what should it go with how does it how do i get the most out of it um and yeah i probably spent as much time in the division designers in the eugen games uh as i have actually playing the battles uh because there is something really compelling about taking this taking sort of this grab bag of different weapons of different eras and capacities and saying like okay how would you make something cohesive out of this how do you make sense out of this jumble you've been you've been handed um yeah i i think i've always been really attracted by that too um and also has probably led me into a lot of disappointments. I think 
it, that type of detail like we're describing here i love this type of detail the weird thing is a lot of games that are detail obsessed i don't actually like it's yeah. it's a weird thing i talked a little bit about this with uh you know rowan and tj the other night about like my love with my, my love affair with the Operation art of war where it's like i love the idea of games full of these kinds of thickets of details and like you detailed unit breakdowns of like what weapon systems it has what kind of armor i loved the fucking armor slope and weapon penetration tables available for every vehicle in um combat mission i loved that stuff remember the little graph yeah. that showed like okay uh so this tank has this armor and at this range this round will not penetrate i love that did i actually do a lot with it no like i didn't need to know what the penetration ranges were against certain types of armor at a certain slope none of that mattered to me but it mattered that it was there yeah so i will again and again gravitate toward these games that lay out the banquet table of implied detail right and statistics but the weird thing is it's more I like to admire it from afar, but the thing I don't want is to actually be forced to mess with all of it at once, right? Like, it's it's weird. I want a game to, uh, like, allow the possibility of, like, drilling deep into a system or a type of stat, but also a lot of games that tend to provide that, I often find myself feeling kind of awash in details because then i'm not sure which ones really matter and i think that became more of a problem as we moved from the 90s into the 2000s i mean there's a sweet spot right you want to have a game where the details matter otherwise they're just you know irrelevant the details are there they don't make a difference and it's just chrome and it's pointless but you don't want them to matter too much because you can only handle so much detail you can only handle like the engine torque on a panther is of no interest to me. This goes really well going uphill. Yeah, if panther's going uphill, you've got a whole bunch of other problems to worry about, okay? Uh, so that doesn't make a whole lot of difference to me. So there's, there is a, a point where the detail just becomes detail for the sake of detail. But you can't also not have it uh, because I mean, you can't just ignore it because if it's there for no reason... Then it's I think this is the Operation Art of War thing uh, and somewhat in Age of Rifles. It's just a bunch of stuff thrown together and you don't know which thing you're supposed to be paying attention to here. Uh, it's okay for one thing you have to figure out. Okay, these uh, these are rifled weapons supposed to, you know, smooth bore. That probably means something. Um, but if for example, Operation Art of War, where this division has some tanks and some armored cars and some foot and a supply unit, and what do I do with this? Um, and I think this is kind of where, part of where I think combat uh, modern operations command modern operations kind of loses me a bit, and that a lot of the detail is with is the game itself. The detail is setting up all of your different pickets and your flight paths, and instead of Click planes, send there. Um, yeah, I want to know, can this plane do a low-altitude uh, bombing run? That is something I need to know, because that's good to avoid radar. I don't necessarily need to know all of the... how far out it can be detected. Um, that might be a little bit too much detail for me, when I, all I want to do is just 
you know, send my fencer in there to take out the radar installation. Um, so there's, there was a point where this kind of detail was just really, really intoxicating. And yeah, I think there's a, there's a stage where I wonder if I just, if, you know, war gamers, just kind of war game designers went too far with that. But I don't know. I, mean, I still, I've been playing a lot of combat mission. Anyone who follows me on Twitter knows I've been playing a lot of combat mission the last two months. So the old, the old stuff, not the new combat missions, but I'm sure are quite good. Like going back to, uh, you know, Barbarossa to Berlin and Africa Corps and all the stuff's available on GOG.com. And I do highly recommend it. Wait, all of it's available now? All the three, all three of the classic games are on GOG.com. Oh, wow, because for the longest time, I think it was only the core game, right? That was like widely available. Uh, beyond, it might have been just Beyond Overwatch for a while, but now it's all three of them. Oh, so I really, really think we should do some multiplayer of this yes. uh, because it, it, it's a great, great game. And I've been playing a lot of it. And some of the detail is actually kind of interesting. But, you know, then you but no equipment list survives first contact with the terrain. Uh, I like just generating random battles. So, you know, just give me what you got. And... You know, sometimes I'll do I'll do a I'll do a city defense setup, I'll do an allied defense of a city. So I want to have a lot of infantry there, maybe a couple of anti tank guns, set up some minefields. I don't need a lot of detail there. And if I was if I was if I was attacking that city, I'm not sure how much detail I need on my tank selection. I just need to know I have some artillery available uh, to take down some buildings. Uh, and some uh, half tracks so I can get my infantry in place quickly. But that's, even though Combat Mission is a, lot, a game in love with its vehicles, it's in love with the vehicles as a tactical asset, as opposed to in love with the vehicles as a mechanic would be. And I think Harpoon and a lot of its successes are in love with vehicles as, you know, pieces of machinery. And, oh, this one can fly at this speed and can carry this kind of hardware and can do this kind of loadout. And that was amazing to me when I was in my early 20s. Um, and I think part of that's always stuck with me. But right now in a war game, I just want to know the, what are my tools and will my tools help me get to my goal? And if not, how do I turn this chisel into a screwdriver? Yeah, I... Um... I am curious, like, so where where does that still come out for you in terms of the love of the weird, like, the love of that detail? Because for me, usually it manifests just in terms of, like, so your odd, unwise purchase uh, mm -hmm. occasionally. Yeah. You know, once or twice a year, I go on a wargaming buying spree, and then I'm always like, oh, I don't like any of these. Um, and that's sometimes part of it. Um, I, I think to an extent, like some of it comes out for me in reading like the unit descriptions in a total war, you know, and seeing like, oh, here's how they talk about this army fitting together. And, well, oh, you know, if you look, this has a this unit actually doesn't have a really high defense, but it has a very high like melee block chance. Uh, so and I get really into that. Um, but I, I still think for me, for the most part. This is like mostly this trait, this this taste is how I end up deluding myself that I will like something more than I actually will. Uh, I am always I am always sort of it's it's sort of like the um, you know, you see a. 
a really lavish set of books in a in a in a used bookstore or something and you're like my god i could really become a subject matter expert if i just took the time to plop down and just drink deeply of this like you know 10 volume set uh, one of which is just like appendices and such. I could really learn a lot about this subject. And the answer is, yeah, sort of. Uh, but the weird thing is uh, probably you'd, you'd be miserable and you would be uh, staring at all the trees in the forest and you still might never see the forest. Uh, and yet I convince myself consistently that that level of detail will make me happy. A lot of this comes out from, and I satisfy it, in light naval simulations. Uh, I remember Atlantic Fleet from a few years ago. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I mean, something like that, where you're a submarine and you're, okay, what, what kind of what kind you can be a submarine or you can be a, the, the surface fleet. And, you know, what what are my torpedoes? Um, where are my destroyers? Where should I put them? And it's all it's very tactical, not a strategic game. It's not an operational game like Harpoon. But once again, it's about the equipment. So so a lot of light naval games like that are a great way uh, to do it. R Rule the Waves is kind of a bit on the hardcore end. But the, let's see, some of there, some of there you have the whole e love of equipment when you're designing it for the, the whole way. But yeah, it, a, a lot of this stuff comes in those sorts of places. Um I mean, the, the, the proper sub-sims to an extent, but really it's, it's the light, the very light uh, naval, modern naval combat games, uh, carrier war uh, type stuff. Nothing too uh, elaborate because I just don't have the time anymore uh, to learn anything. Um, I'm hearing some good things about this game that recently came out called Shadow Empire. Uh, John Bolding, who's uh, one of our regular panelists, he just did a review of it for PC Gamer, and he says he loves, in his review, he talks about the Division Designer, and how you can design all of your post-apocalyptic divisions for certain purposes. Like, well, this sounds like something, I've only dabbled with it, but this sounds like something I should be jumping into, right? I mean, it's, yep. it sounds like, well, this is, I mean, the game looks incomprehensible, but I'm on vacation now, so I can, you know, dive into that. It's, it's, I can build, he, he says he built a, a combined operations uh, armor infantry division to punch through zombie lines or whatever. It all sounds, you know, very fake. Um, but you also know, goofily but, compelling. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of thing. Well, well, I'd play it and say, wow, why don't they make this but about insert Troy's new historical hobby horse. Um, and of course, it'll probably be a lousy game, but that's what I will end up doing. I'll play it for three hours and say, this would be great if it was about the English Civil War, because I'm an idiot. Um, so there's, there's a, I think there are a lot of places that itch can get scratched. I mean, like I, said, I think Command Modern Operations is the nearest analog to Harpoon. Uh, but we did a show on it a while ago when I said how hard I found it to get into. And the developers were not happy that I said that. They were angry. I got some angry messages. Uh, they were not happy that I said they hard to get into. So look, I played Harpoon. I, 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 I've, I have my battle scars from learning complicated games with no manual because it was pirated. Um, and I still couldn't get into Command Man, Naval, Command Modern Air Naval Operations, it was called. Uh, now it's just Command Modern Operations. I understand they've made it a little bit easier, so I want to get back into it. Uh, and I think that is the type of game that I... Their scenario list is really outstanding, really well done, great database of equipment. So that's something I want to throw myself into, and maybe we can revisit it on the show. 
uh, later if I can get someone to take the dive with me. Uh, oh, I might I might finally let myself be guilted, um, especially now that it's just modern operations. Now that it's not like the Navy thing was a stumbling point, because when that game came out, I was like, OK, so what are we going to do like uh, China scare politics where like you got to you got to hold back the, uh, you know, P- PLAN uh, with with the Pacific fleet? Or is it just going to be like, OK. Uh, here's another scenario where you have to secure the, uh, you know, Persian Gulf against some yeah. threat or patrol against pirates off the uh, Horn of Africa. Well, I mean, they have their, histor- their historical database is quite good. I think they have some Falkland scenarios in there. So they have a good historical database, uh, which you know, might be worth looking into. Uh, so there's so that, that's something I, I wanted I want to check out. That is the successor to Arpu. That is, you know, but yeah, I'm I'm not going to be like. 17 again i don't have time to you know yeah i i, I i'm not enough but blowing off you know my french literature class it's like i can't afford to blow off my french literature class because it's work i get paid to do it i can like blow off french literature class in college uh yeah. and play and 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 bomb libya or uh do another uh defense of Israel or attack Israel. You know, you could do all of these things uh, in the harpoon scenario. So it is. It is. I kind of miss those days when I could just spend time to figure out a game, which is kind of the thing with Shadow Empire. I'm glad it's coming on vacation where we have this time where I can actually, you know, dig into the manual. But I'm just. I know this is ironic considering I work with Paradox, but I just don't have time yeah. to to invest hours into learning a game that I might not like. Um, and that's so hard for strategy games. I mean, it's it, even the games I don't end up liking a whole lot um, that I think are interesting, but uh, are just uh, kind of, I'm looking at uh, oh, Wars Across the World, for example, which is another really interesting uh, set of historical scenarios. And it's relatively easy to learn. They're all kind of different. Uh, different settings and different rule sets and different cards, but the system doesn't work. It, a system you design for like the bulge in 1944 isn't going to work for Byzantium in 1116. It's just not. No matter how you change it, it's just you can't have the same card system to work the same way. Uh, it's effectively trying to be a different game each time out and it doesn't work. But it's a kind of game I can pick up really easy because it's just a, it, it's a card and area movement game. Fantastic! I can dig into it. I can say, do I want to play Quartet in 1519? I can try it and see what happens. Um, something like uh, Shadow Empire or Command Modern Operations, that's an investment. And I'd work with games all day. So in the evenings, I don't want to teach myself something. I'm probably a bad person for that. Well, I mean, I think it's probably the... Like, when I think about... Episode 500 versus episode one, or for me, like when it was episode, uh, you know, 44, 45. What was, what was your first episode? <sighs> I you, think it was Greatest Disappointments. Um, you came in the second, was, you came in the second year. Yeah, uh, but it was, I think it was in the 40s. Yeah. Uh, in terms of episode numbers. But yeah, I think uh, it was like games that just didn't hit for us. Like things right. we were really excited for right. and then just didn't land. I think mine was Ascendancy. Um, a, a harsh lesson 
in realizing that sometimes games suck and you're not clear (laughs) and you don't realize they suck until you're way far into them yeah right like ascendancy i was like holy shit this is amazing this is the greatest 4x i've ever played i had played like three of them by that point and then like 20 hours later i was wait i was like wait uh is this game is this game playing like is there an ai playing against me i'm not sure uh but yeah, so I, I I came around the episode forty, but I, but I do think like when we're talking about differences between then and now, um, it just one of the things that changes is that for me at least, I find myself maybe this is no different for you. Lately, I find myself a little more excited to read history books than play games about history. Um, and there was a time there for a long time where I was like. Actually, I would prefer to play the war game version of this. I yeah. want to be all in on this. And increasingly now, I find myself thinking I would like to spend the day, uh, you know, having coffee at my table and sitting there with a good book and just like really pouring over it. Um, and I think that's that's happened across like the board for me in games uh, yeah. to an extent. Like so, so much has changed since the early years of the show. I mean, I, I say this a lot to people. But you know, when I started Three Moves Ahead uh, and when you came on, there were maybe 20 strategy games in a year. So we could have a lot more theme shows and make sure, and we were pretty sure that everybody would have played pretty much everything that was coming out. Now, we don't do a whole lot more theme shows. We probably revisit a lot of those theme shows because I'm sure a lot of thoughts of those have changed. You are probably like do another show on religion, for example. Yeah. Um, but... Now there are also, like, you can get 20 games in, like, three months. There are, like, 100 strategy games a year. And getting any of us to have, like, four people all playing the same ones in the same detail is such a chore. <laughs> uh, if you want to hit but a, a little hit behind the scheduling issues here. It's just, it's, it, it, there is just so much content now. So many games. And having to, we're all excited about different ones. And then somebody's to make the investment to get a to get to play a game somebody else is excited about and be interested enough to get past whatever barriers there are. Like I think we should do a show on Shadow Empire, because John has some interesting things to say about it. And he gave it a very interesting review. And John's a smart, smart guy. I trust him a lot. And it has some board game stuff going on. And it kind of reminds me of Armageddon Empires to go back to like way, way back uh, in strategy game history. But that's something that I have to invest time in learning. And we should probably have to find somebody else who's played it. Yeah. Um, because, you know, two people, could, two people can do a show, but the, but only, a, only the right two people can do a show. Um, and it's just so much has changed in, in 500 episodes. And I think you're right. One of the things is the types of games that excited me way back then, when there were many fewer of them. So it was kind of easy to get excited when you only got like, two or three history titles a year and all the rest were science fiction or command and conquer. And now it's, there's just this wealth of stuff. There's this really weird cartoony crusade game. I want to check out. There are so many city builders this year, uh, that are worth taking a look at, including one that's kind of free. There are so many things coming out around the corner, new strongholds, you know, remasters of all these classic RTSs. Uh, lots of war games, um, and uh, but yeah, uh, many days. I'd rather sit back and 
instead of reading a book and thinking, hey, there should be a game about, it's playing a game and saying there should be a book about. Um, you you mentioned something there. Um, this is something Rowan brought up. Uh, Rowan said that one of the things that she's struggling with these days is the game she wants to play is already out, right? Like yeah. there's also an element of, and I find myself doing this too, where I'm sitting there thinking, man, there's all these new games, but I would love to do another campaign of uh, Rowan and I are both still kind of in a three kingdoms uh, zone for total war. Like we love that game. Yeah. And there's a lot of days where I'm like, well, if I'm going to play a strategy game, I want to play a really good one. And right now, the one that sounds best is still that, right? Yeah. And I think the other the other thing that you start to, I don't know, maybe it's just uh, how you value your time, something that changes. I find myself wanting to stop and linger over the games I love and like get a little deeper into them rather than like skip away onto the next thing. Um, like, I think th- this is sort of the thing that drives uh, Bruce to, like, you know, for the last year and a half, Bruce's thing has been to really gaze deeply into Empire of the Sun and, like, fully appreciate that game's model of the Pacific Theater. And, you know, two years ago when Bruce would, like, bring this stuff up, I was like, okay, Bruce, you're... I get it. You're you're a bit of a monomaniac, right? Like that's that's yeah. always been kind of your thing a little bit. And now I find myself kind of getting it in a really strong way, right? Where oh, I you know, I want to play strategy games for sure. Uh but a lot of times now the thing that appeals me to the most is uh going to that virtual cabinet and pulling out an old favorite right or just staying on a current obsession rather than putting in like the the labor of like working hard to understand something that there's a good chance you know may let me down or may may be so frustrating um it's it's a real tension with um you know a a show and a hobby that kind of runs on enthusiasm Right. I can I can feel myself at times uh, gravitating more now toward old familiar favorites. And like you talking about old theme shows, I'm like, yeah, I'd love to dust off old theme shows and discuss all our old favorites again. Um, there'll be a lot of different ones. I mean, look at I think I I mentioned the religion theme show, which was done in, uh, I think, 2009, which I missed. I missed that one because uh, my father was dying then. So. Great crossover. Uh, it's a show that I'm sorry I missed. But, you know, think about all the ways games have dealt with religion since 2009. Like, you could do Crusader Kings alone uh, and talk about religion. You could talk about how, like, the, back then, Civ Five didn't exist. So right. Civ Six didn't exist. And how they conceptualized, right, back then, religion was opiate of the masses in civilization. That's all it was. Um, and then you had... Uh, you had uh, was Solium Infernum out then? I don't know. The game about you know trying to be the the, the king of hell. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff and that can be revisited because we've there's so many new favorites and it's not like I, I don't play new games because I do from time to time. But yeah, when I when I'm tired at the end of the day, I just want to load up Civ Six on Prince level and beat on Montezuma for two hours. Yep. 
and you know that's fine or combat mission or yeah it's totally now that i have a new computer with a solid disc i'm getting back into three kingdoms because it doesn't take an hour to load a battle it's fantastic um but that's part of why I want to use my vacation. I've got I've got some big life stuff going on right now too that I don't want to get into here. Uh, it's going to eat up some of my vacation time, but I do want to spend some of it going to the games that I've missed uh, or that I have not had the time for. I think this is the best time to do that, and hopefully that will give me uh, some energy going into the fall to you know schedule some shows on these games because there is so much, so so much going on now. Um, I never thought the show would last you know, three years, let alone close to 10. Um, I still think it's the best thing I've ever started, even though it's, I mean, people still thank me for it, though it's more your show, Rob, now than it is mine. Uh, and you've done a fantastic job with it. Um, so, but I'm still very proud of it. But in 10 years, my interests have changed. Everyone's interests have changed. I'm not going anywhere. I don't think the show is going anywhere either. No. Uh but just to see how my attitude towards gaming and the types of, I, I mean, something like Harpoon has come out now, I'd probably play it, but I probably still wouldn't play it to relax. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I, I think there's, there's also an element of like, I think the most animated show scheduling conversation you and I have had uh, in the last couple months is the one we've had this week about Waterloo, uh, Gettysburg, Glory, and maybe Lincoln. Like, which of these pair, right? Like, which like which well, treatments of history do we for, want to For the longest time, we had a podcast target of hit this target and we'll do a book show. We should, we've done two holiday movie pairing shows. And I would love to have more of those conversations with you because... Yeah. We, we both watch we both watch movies we both like movies neither of us are like professional critics or anything um i mean there's just so much great stuff out there and i think that's something we should probably think about doing i might get some of our other energies back yeah because uh, i love those conversations with you i just think there's so much fun yeah and uh try i do regret to inform you that i have re-entered my civil war phase um oh, i thought you? those days were behind me uh, but I'm back again, and I'm reading the Chernow uh, Grant biography, uh, Battle Cry Freedom, and uh, also at night before bed, because it's an easy read, uh, I've been reading the Catton uh, Army of the Potomac series. Oh my god. Uh, so, just following, like, this is, so, this is the okay. life cycle okay. of... I, th I think everyone goes through a Civil War phase once a year. Yeah. And I, yeah, go, I, it, I go through a 30 years war phase every three years. Like I, my faces are relatively regular. Um, I mean, the, the, the Roman phase is never going to end. It's always in fashion. It, that, that's a lifestyle at this point. It's a lifestyle choice. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a civil war. I mean, I mean we, really, we really should think about uh, the movie thing in general. But we've got a good, I mean, I do want to say we've got a really good core of panelists now. Uh, we've brought in some really great guests in the last 10 years, outstanding guests. Um, and the, I mean, the, the show started as a way for me and Bruce and Tom to most talk about our writing because the games we talk about games we generally all reviewed for one place or another. Uh, so a place to promote our writing and the genre. Uh, it started as like more than just a topic a, a week. It was like a lot of mixing of topics for a while, but then it became let's pick a topic and stick to it. And now it's grown, I think, into something a lot more than that because first, there isn't a whole lot of writing, period. Um, you do a lot of writing, and but your writing is going to be very different. Like you, don't, you don't do that many reviews. You do some reviews. Uh, TJ does mostly reviews. Fraser does news. 
Rowan, I don't know what she does uh, these days, but she's a valuable voice uh, on the panel, absolutely. Um, and I'm interested in listening to the conversation you had with Rowan and TJ and their experiences, uh, because they weren't even on the radar like nine years ago. They were not people who I knew at all. I mean, I, 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 I knew your writing, which is why I invited you on the show nine years ago, uh, but I did not know them. Uh, when I started the show or not, or even a year into the show. And they are just absolutely crucial uh, to keeping the show running in s- as smoothly as it does. Um, so thank you for the last 10 years. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's been one of my great pleasures to have these conversations, uh, you know, ideally once a week, sometimes not quite as frequently. We, but, ch- we try. Uh, what a joy getting to shoot the shit about a beloved hobby and favorite topics uh, with some of your best friends every week. Uh, I do ask everyone to check out our Patreon if you listen. Even, even just a dollar a month is a very nice uh, little bit. It does help out in paying for production costs and compensating panelists uh, for their times and occasionally in buying games we can't get for free because uh, we don't always due to the many free. grudges no we love all our PR friends we do love all our PR friends but you know some places are stingier than others uh, which is fine which is fine I mean it's I've got a job I can buy games but you know freelancers are different uh, but we do we do support our, we love our listeners uh, the audience has grown steadily uh, I never thought anybody would have any interest in this really it started uh, I mean, Tom checked because there's a lot of the credit here for uh, promoting the show on his forum for the longest time, but he was a regular panelist. Uh, then he started his own show, and that was fine, but that was a good kickstart we needed. Uh, now we get, you know, uh, tens of thousands of listeners every week, which is just mind-blowing. Yeah, it is uh, remarkable to think about, like, how small and intimate a circle it was in the early days and how like small that audience was where like you you, like the people who commented on it like we knew everyone by name uh to an extent as to like who was commenting on flash of steel um and now it's a very different reality um at at, at paradox con i think two or three years ago someone recognized my voice and that was nice yeah it's um it's so strange to be recognized in public at that place. Like, cause I'm just not used to that. And so like the, yeah, the one place I've had people be like, wait, are you Rob Zachney? It's, it's like paradox con. And yep. I'm always like, Oh shit, what did I do? <laughs> uh, and then I remember like, Oh, we do a podcast about this. So it makes sense. Um, yeah. All right. Troy, thank you so much for inviting me on 10 years ago. Uh, 500 episodes. Holy shit. All right, and at long last, I am sitting down with our elite, irregular panelist, uh, who's still been a regular old warhorse uh, these many years of Three Moves Ahead, Dr. Bruce Garrick. Uh, so, Bruce, we've, uh, we've sort of been going down memory lane uh, with a lot of the current stable of regulars and talking about games that had a really powerful influence on us and our relationship to games and strategy games, uh, you know, early in our lives. And at your behest, I've spent, uh, you know, a couple days playing around with Chris Crawford Crawford's Eastern front 1941 for the Atari 800. Oh my God. I thought you were going to play minesweeper. Boy, this uh, 
when I saw videos of this online, uh-huh. it looked a bit like Minesweeper. Yeah. And no I kidding. was like, okay, this doesn't look like anything. You're just pushing units around. This ain't mm-hmm. shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and you insisted. You were like, mm-hmm. no, you should you should try to get an emulator running yeah, and you should try do, this yeah. thing out. And you did. I did. I did. Um, and I'm supposed to be asking you questions about mm-hmm. this, Bruce, but I mm-hmm. have to show my hand here up yeah. front. Yeah. I think I really like this game. Yeah. Um, I think I am surprised at how much is here. Yeah. Despite it being such a simple game in some ways. And yep. so retro, both in its, in its, uh, aesthetics, obviously, mm-hmm. but also in just the stripped down nature of the game. I had to laugh. I was reading the manual and at least once, I think a couple times uh, in Crawford's design notes in the manual, he talks about how complicated this game is. People mm-hmm. should people should buckle up. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot going on here. Yep. And compared to any war game, including war games you would consider fairly introductory and rudimentary uh, right. these days, this thing is incredibly straightforward. Yes. Um. And just on that front alone, I think I found this a little bit of a relief uh, mm-hmm. to play. Mm-hmm. Um, the the way it is, you know, it's it's basically just a can you win Barbarossa uh, yep. game in yep. in a lot of ways. Uh, doesn't even it doesn't it even have to, a Soviet. Goes campaign. to forty two, I think, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. So you you've got um, Barbarossa, and then can you prevent the wheels? from coming off uh, right. by the time Stalingrad mm-hmm. uh, rolls around. Um, and things that weren't immediately apparent to me is I didn't realize there's a simultaneous resolution system mm-hmm. going on under the yeah. hood. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize that there was order queuing yep. happening over the course mm-hmm. of these week-long turns. Yeah. And it turns out with those simple elements in place, plus supply uh, having a huge factor on whether a unit can achieve its paper strength in terms of combat power. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those three elements, uh, supply, queued orders, and uh, like phased turns, Mm -hmm. make this a surprisingly compelling Eastern Front war game. And uh, I was pleasantly taken aback by how cool this is despite its age. Yeah. I think it's magic. I mean, I think it's better than probably most of the Barbarossa games that are out there now. I mean, I think that the state of the art of wargaming um, sort of hit a sweet spot here. Um, and then, you know, some things improved and some things didn't, from my perspective. Um, it was interesting to me. I was pulling this out uh, after having played uh, uh, Across the Dnepr. Uh, the SSG game yeah. uh, that came after uh, Course and Pocket. And I was thinking, wow, you know, the the amount of time that I need to spend on a turn seems just incredible in this game and in, in across the Dnepr. But then I thought back to how uh, how much time I spent on those turns in Eastern Front 1941 and it's almost the same level of, of overwhelmingness. I remember I played this. I had a friend named Barry. He uh, he and I uh, were in uh, junior high school together. Uh, and I lost track of him a long, long time ago. Uh, but uh, he had an Atari 800. 
And he got this thing from the Atari Program Exchange called Eastern Front 1941. And he's like, hey, come on over, because we used to play squad leader together. And, I mean, we must have been, I'm saying we were in seventh or eighth grade. And we got it, and we loaded it up, and it was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is so complicated. And we just spent hours trying to, like, perfect the, you know, your, your look. Because you, the way the game, for the, for the listeners, who I'm sure uh, many of them have not played the game, you get these units. They're standard units. They are on a square grid, not a hex grid. And there's terrain. And each turn, you give your units orders. And I think you can give them up to eight orders. I can't quite remember. But I think it was eight. Yeah, it was eight. And the orders are, you know, move. uh, I think there's an assault, right? There's there's two different kinds of attacks. There's like go and then then attack go. Is that true? Or no? That might have been the cartridge version. I don't remember. In any case... uh, the whole point of the game is that, you know, you, you queue up the orders and then uh, when, you, uh, when you hit resolve, every unit, you know, resolves its orders in, you know, simultaneous resolution. And if you are trying to move through a swamp, it's, your unit is going to go much more slowly than if your unit's going, you know, across the open ground. And if the Tanks are going to go faster than the infantry and all this kind of stuff. And it does really, as you play, sort of show you in a very sort of, uh, I don't want to say stylized, it just, in, a, in just sort of a, a graphic, clear way, the difficulties of coordinating the armor and the infantry, how fast the armor goes, how slow the infantry goes. Uh, you have uh, Luftflots, the uh, air, uh air support, but they are, you know, limited and they can only use them, uh, for, you know, they're only, I think you only have one per army group. Um, so you'll never have as much air support as you need. Uh, and you just have to, you, you know, you're, you're trying to, uh, coordinate these encirclements, right. And you're thinking, oh, you know, these, cause the Russians, and this is by the way, only, as you know, only a German, there's no Russian player and you can't play as the Russians and you can't play multiplayer. You are the Germans, and the Russian AI plays as the AI, and it's issuing orders as well. So it's trying to, you know, pull back or counterattack you, and as you, you know, sort of encircle troops, you, you, you know, you want to cut them off. We used to have this thing called the uh, Pripet, uh, Pripet Wall, where you just kind of get south of the Pripet Marshes, and you try to keep all those uh, Russians from, from redeploying, and then you kind of sneak all your armor down through into sort of this army group south thing. Um, I think that was our most effective strategy. Um, but we spent hours and hours trying to optimize this. Uh, and we went from uh, being completely unable to make any headway. And, you know, because the, the, I think there's just a score uh, at the end. We went from being able to make no headway at all to uh, uh, w- what we would do is we would uh, see how fast we could line all of our remaining troops up against the eastern edge of the map. <laughs> like just wipe out all the Russians and then have every single German unit lined up against the Eastern edge. Does that prevent the uh, Russian reinforcements from spawning in as well? Uh, I don't, 
Yeah, I, I think they can't spawn in if you uh, if you're there. So yes, I'm pretty sure it's been a long time. But boy, yeah, we yeah. we got we got to that point where where we had a wall of Germans uh, at the at the eastern edge. But I mean, that took that took you know hundreds of hours of, of our time. Yeah, and I think when we were talking about this earlier, um, what did that experience of of solving the game? Uh, teach you because because in the emails at least we exchanged it sounded mm -hmm. like that was a bit of a bittersweet experience at least the moment you sort of had kind of uh killed the game in, yeah. in some ways right that like this game that you loved for a long time now once you had basically solved you, you'd solved it there was mm -hmm. very little left there uh that, that the game was done yeah i mean i guess it's the same with any i mean especially the arcade games of the time right i mean if you if you played, you know, on the Atari, and you you were really, really, really good at some, uh, it's you know, River Run or I, I don't know what, uh, you know, Pac Man. Um, although that just kept getting harder and harder and harder until you died. Um, this you could sort of beat, and then there was really no reason to play it again except for trying to beat your score. And eventually, your scores were it just you know, you had the maximum score. Um, but I I don't think. I think that it took, I think it took us years. I think actually I had to, when, when I actually solved the game, it had, cause when we got it on, on, uh, from the Atari program exchange, it came on hard, uh, hard disk, came on floppy disks. And I think we, it, I ended up solving it when it came out on, on a cartridge. Um, uh, but it played, we played it for, for so many hours. And, uh, I mean, I think by the time we were done, I was kind of done with it. Um, and there were other games, but it, but it, it was that at that time, you know, you had, you know, how much manpower you had and how many, how much supply you had, uh, and, and needing to, you know, optimize your supply. That was, that was sort of the limit of what I think people felt that they could do at the time. And, and it very, you know, the, the, the idea of what is manageable kept going up, the threshold kept going up. Uh, and I don't know that that, I mean, for some people, yes, that's they, that's what they want. They want too much stuff to uh, that that they want more stuff than they can keep track of because that sort of increases the verisimilitude of the situation, right? But I think that in the way that uh, those games were at that time, you sort of felt like you were just sort of crutch, clutching at the maximum amount of information that you could parse at one time, and so you you were struggling to overcome that and the opponent. Yeah, I was struck by how much of this game boils down a lot of the things that I find interesting about war games at this level, mm -hmm. like the fact that you have to lay out these, these order cues basically, mm -hmm. and hope everything goes right. Uh, right. because what you can do is, um, units can't, it doesn't, it, looking at the, uh, manual, it doesn't look mm -hmm. like units can pass through each other. Like that's no, where the traffic jams happen. Right. Right. Uh, and so if things aren't properly synchronized two units, whose moves were supposed to happen sequentially, if they happen mm -hmm. simultaneously, they're trying to the same hawks, the, ha the same hacks, uh, square, they've, mm -hmm. they've blocked each other and right. like things slow down. Right. Ditto, uh, the Russian AI does a, like it, it's effective at just being there mm -hmm. and being in your way. And you don't know which way they're going to go as you're trying to route them. Right. Uh, and so your order cues might be kind of mooted by mm -hmm. the way the Soviet uh, player reacts. Uh, 
plus the fact that the game does have punishing supply rules. Right. But cutoff units won't just wither and die. Somebody has to go and deal with them. Correct. Yeah, they don't just um, vanish. They have to be they have to be pounded into the into the ground. Uh, so really quickly, like you end up having German infantry units running around mopping up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cut off Soviet units, which yep. is easy, but it does keep happening. And so the forward edge of your line continually is like losing strength because yep. you've got units basically like playing Pac-Man in the background, trying to close out these uh, Soviet encirclements. And I was just sort of struck by like, how many Eastern Front games with way more simulational fidelity, ostensibly, mm-hmm. struggle to get the big picture elements of this, that this game kind of yeah, nails Yeah, I mean, I agree. Right? Uh, I think that a lot of the uh, simplicity of the game uh, uh, sort of, um, I don't know, lends itself to this kind of, you know, broad stroke accuracy, which I don't think really... Uh, I mean, the more moving parts you have in a game, the harder it is to get all the moving parts to work together, right? I mean, I think that that you know, there's the there's the waiting, uh, there's the waiting element. Uh, you you can you can uh, have a unit wait, and it's very important because if you have uh, a you know a Panzer and you want to create a breakthrough for that Panzer, that Panzer may have to wait uh, a few turns so that it can get you know through the hole that is being made, uh, or uh, you know, if you're if you're waiting for somebody to to break out, you don't want that guy to uh, you know if you're if you're surrounded, you don't want that guy to attack while he's unsupplied. You want to wait until he's got a line to him so he can you know get out. And if you attack, you 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 coordinate your attacks. If you don't get that right, then all sorts of wacky stuff happens. Units are you know two units or one unit's going east, one unit's going west. They they can't resolve it and they just sit there stuck. And then the next turn. You've got these units in the you know that that never kind of got off their starting position. So it's just a it's a uh, it we used to just sit there every you know every turn you go and you check everybody's orders and then you kind of in your mind okay he's gonna wait one he's gonna wait one beat and then he attacks and then he's gonna attack and then he waits and then he goes you know two forward and one up and then this guy's you know it's just, it's just a, it's a really interest it's a really intricate dance that I think. Uh, uh, is is compelling in itself and you don't need a lot of you know accoutrement to to make it cool yeah and the things like the simplified terrain also just have this way of reducing the constraints you're you're dealing with uh down to their down to their essence like the the prepit marshes it's funny how often like really detailed granular movement rules right where it's like well this is uh, this is wet marshland. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, dry prairie. This is swampy forest. You know, like eight different varieties of what we consider like, you know, marsh in Eastern Europe. All these different right. terrain rules and different costs for that. Mm-hmm. The sum effect of that can be to make it feel like the Pripet marshes exist, but also they kind of don't because there's no essential quality to them. They're just a different yeah. kind of terrain that units move through at a slightly different rate here it's just like oh that, that's a moat i just yeah. i need to get around that if my mm-hmm. plan involves sending panzers through that i've i've screwed up so i need to i have got this huge hole in the center of my line mm-hmm. that i just have to somehow hope i can close on the other side quickly enough 
and uh, you know bridge it with, with sort of a screen of infantry. Mm-hmm. And so many games don't evoke that for me, right? Like so many games don't make river crossings feel momentous because there's just too many different flavors of river or something. Right. Or the rules are too mm-hmm. uh, you know abstract or or detailed. And here it's it's very much just a game where like at a glance I can I can sort of say I want to force a crossing at this river because at that point I've got open ground but everything depends on getting a bunch of units over this river really quickly. Yeah, so I think that there's a lot of stuff in games currently that is there not so that you necessarily deal with it straightforwardly but it sort of it it sort of builds the milieu right like you have i mean that's that's what that's what all that stuff is in uh in war in the east right i have 12 panzer twos right that what what if what if i had 13 panzer twos it it doesn't matter that's not the point the point is that i can see that this has this unit has 12 panzer twos and that inherently builds this sort of universe this make-believe universe where i'm on the eastern front right and a lot of those terrain rules, I think, are just so people can see, oh, you know, well, look at how realistic this terrain, this is This is the real terrain that, you know, the more you abstract things into just swamp or just forest, people feel it's not, you know, accurate. Yet, uh, it does create an effect that when you get to the river, there's the river, right? So now you're having a, a dramatic river crossing at this point. There's no other terrain there that you're, you know, you have to, oh, there's this thing. No, there's, that's, this square is where I'm jumping off. And that square, if I can get to that square, then, uh, so it focuses you. And I think that that is a thing that, uh, that war games really struggle to do now with their uh, sort of diffuse, their, 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 their chasing of everything, right? The, 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 this, this, I use the word verisimilitude, but I think that that's a, the word that you use can really describe the issue because people who want this kind of experience are the people who uh, who really want all that stuff to be in the game, and they are completely fine with not having to deal with it as a um, as a uh, quantitative element. It's just sort of this qualitative thing in the background that oh well, you know, this is this is ideally harder to get through than this, and and whatever. Um, but uh, but I, I I have to say that wasn't the way I experienced it when I played it because when I played it it seemed so detailed and so realistic and you know you had these these gra- very granular uh, strength points that you know it wasn't just like this this unit has seven attack factors versus nine versus five you know it was all the way up to a hundred and so the fact that granularity at that time made it seem so much more uh, you know realistic than uh than any board game that we played and the fact that this stuff was done simultaneously uh resolved simultaneously and there was this there's such a uh an anticipation that built up around every turn right because you you went in you put in your orders and then you hit the resolve button and then you just watch and you start you see this the assault start to build right and the way that they would do is you would see the uh every time you know, got hit by your units, it would flash, right? So you'd see all of a sudden these Russian units would start flashing and they'd just start getting hit, hit, hit. And all of a sudden a Russian unit vanishes, just got, you know, destroyed by the Germans. So then all of a sudden your units start moving through, but then the, the, you have the um, uh, zones of control 
were the four squares around, and then the diagonals turned into zone of control if someone else, another uh, two units that were uh, separated by one square diagonally could project, uh, you know, half of a zone of control into that diagonal square, and so that that diagonal became a zone of control. So uh, you couldn't you couldn't necessarily break through uh, until you had wiped, you know, two units in a row out. So all this kind of, you know, um, this sort of dancing around became, you know, we had all these plans and we would say, oh, you know, how, how are we going to do these things? Do we want to take Leningrad? Because Leningrad, you could, the Finns, uh, is good in any good Eastern Front game. The Finns can't attack uh, Leningrad, but you can get them and use them if you um, if you take Leningrad with the Germans. So we always want to take Leningrad so we can break the Finns out just because that was kind of like an achievement, right? Get the Finns to move, right? There should be guaranteed if this were a game now, there would be an, there to be a Chivo that was like uh, free, like Mannerheim freed or something like that, right? And and you know capture Leningrad and move the Finns out of out of Finland. So there's just all this cool stuff you could do, and we wanted to you know how many units could we um, could we surround, and how big could our you know we would compete, like how big can our encirclements get. Um, and then there was just the idea, the fact that the screen, that the weather changed, right? That was, we were playing, we were playing uh, the Russian campaign, uh, a board game, a famous and well, very well-known uh, historical war game. And then we play this game and all of a sudden it's mud and the map changes, right? And then it's snow and the map changes. And it's just, it was so sort of revelatory that this was, this was something that you could do. It was just, it was just such an imagination extender, I would say, um, and I, I don't know that I've gotten to that point. Uh, I mean, the, when Grigsby's, uh, war in Russia came out, um, that was like, I've got to say 91, 92, that seemed like a huge amount of data. And it was just seemed like it made Eastern Front 41 so, um, so incredibly simple. And then War in the East came out, you know, whatever, 20 years after that, and that made uh, War in Russia seem simple. And, and so we just we just keep sort of cranking up the level of detail. But I think that what uh, Eastern Front showed is that you don't necessarily have to have that detail to make a compelling game. You just have to have the perception of that sort of challenge and that you're creating and at that time that created an, this whole other world i mean just we'd scroll around the map being oh my god look how big that map is oh look how far you can go oh look at the you know we'll never get there this this idea of achievement of sort of like distances uh, it, it was it was spectacular and i i uh i'm he, you know he, you know he made another game that you might want to uh, uh, look up. That uh, Chris Crawford made a game in it was probably like four or five years later um, for EA called uh, Patton versus Rommel, and it's kind of not an accurate title because Patton and Rommel never really uh, it was it was a, it was Philly's pocket um, it was sort of breakout um, and uh, closing the pocket. I think it was actually it might have been Cobra. And to the Philly's pocket closure, um, but it was the same thing. It was you know you gave uh, units orders, and then but you could play you could play either side, I believe. But um, but it was done in real time. So you gave orders, and then 
they the units executed them. Here, though, it was on a map where um, there were no hexes. It was it was you know you 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 had like a topographical map sort of, and you had uh, little squares that would push other squares. Um, and it was, I don't think the effect worked as well. And I don't think the game was very popular. I remember playing that a lot and it was challenging, but it never really grabbed me the way, um, the way, uh, Eastern Front 41 did, um, in the, in between, uh, Gary, uh, sorry, Gary, uh, Chris Crawford made a game called Balance of Power, uh, which, uh, was sort of his, I think, uh, the game he's best known for. But uh, I don't, I mean, I, I never got into Balance of Power as much as I got into, uh, into Eastern Front 41. That was, his, that was his trajectory, I think it was, yeah. Eastern Front 41, Balance of Power, and then, um, and then uh, Patton versus Rommel. One thing, because we, we've talked about, like, one of, one of the motifs you return to a lot, and when you consider the arc of games, mm-hmm. is that, there's this sweet spot where people were asking good questions about what can we do with this increasing capacity mm-hmm. that computers represent and the different game experiences we can create using like what computers bring into possibility, like fog of war existing in a way mm-hmm. uh, that is just kind of impossible to make it exist, uh, you know, on, on tabletop. Right. But one of the things that jumps out, to me here is the simultaneous resolution thing and the degree to which this game is about like war as a dynamic space Mm -hmm. where your plans are clashing with somebody else's plans and Mm -hmm. that can cause really interesting sorts of of chaos but it's Mm -hmm. different than a real-time game where you're reacting just like second by second Mm -hmm. it's kind of things are out of your hands during this and it feels to me like that sort of simultaneous resolution system remained kind of an oddity and a novelty through a lot of war game design. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly this sort of multi-step uh, mm-hmm. like order queue, uh, you know, approach seems like if anything, it became less common mm-hmm. uh, over the years. And I'm curious yeah. Why do you why do you think that is? Why why is the default for so many war games like here you have Chris Crawford in God, what year is this? Um This is uh it came out in I think eighty one or eighty two, maybe eighty one. Yeah, so you, you in eighty one you have Chris Crawford looking at like how do I simulate this conflict? And the uh-huh. answer he alights upon is okay, uh you're going to launch these forces into the abyss, plotting out these really intricate moves uh Mm -hmm. that units will have to carry out and you have to Mm -hmm. roughly keep a decent picture in your head of how this play will unfold Mm -hmm. right and then that entire approach seems to largely disappear and computer war games often look like very traditional Mm -hmm. uh hex tabletop uh Mm -hmm. war games and even those with simultaneous resolution tend to have pretty short uh, time frames they're dealing with, right? Mm-hmm. Where, like, right. you are plotting out uh, maybe a couple moves, um, mm-hmm. but by and large, what you're not doing is sort of directing all this traffic in your head mm-hmm. several moves away from where the state of play is right now. And right. why do you think that we see this weird return to, like, board game, like, fixation almost on board game tradition and traditional presentation of what a war game looks like. 
So, you know, I think that the one thing that this, uh, this simultaneous movement did when you had the week-long turns, if you screwed up, you would get these weirdo, just bizarro positions where, um, I mean, it, it was, it was uh, the line looked ridiculous, right? I mean, you'd have panzers out front and you have, uh, you know, but you'd have some of them just be stuck fighting like one unit because you had given the wrong orders or you'd miss, miss, you know, you could, you could have done it right. And, and, and still the, the, uh, the way that the, um, battles went, you, you never got, uh, you never got your breakthrough. And so now you have this, this line that's really crazy and jagged. And I think that a part of that is what really bothered people. Um, I think that having, it just didn't seem right. You know, it, it felt like, why, why do I have this, um, why do I have this line that doesn't correspond to some historical line that I understand, right? And, and I think that this would be, um, it, it's, it's actually quite historical if you, if you look at the way that the lines looked uh, after the, you know, the, the first Russian counteroffensive where the, the Germans uh, um, were, you know, just completely, well, let's say this, the, the second wave of the, of the Russian First Russian counteroffensive, where um, the lines were just all over the place, right? And there were these little pockets and 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 sort of kessels and comp groups, and and the line was never straight. And I mean, that was that's how things were. But I think people don't like to see weird things that they end up that end up being artifacts of the game resolution system. And also, I feel like um, the 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 turn resolution uh the, the and this this may just be my my uh i mean i'm just i'm speculating on all this man i have no idea why it didn't take off but i also think that separating the game into a a, a, a part that you do and a part that you watch uh i think is a little um is a little off-putting but i, I mean i i have to say that um in, in Patton versus Rommel, where he tried to do that, you know, he tried to have a a German and and American, um, uh, you know, line that you then tried to break, um, and it was not on any hex grid. So you, these little squares were kind of moving around. I, I didn't find that particularly compelling. Um, I think the regular regularization of the grid was more. Uh, it just it's weird. It, they, they had those games. I can't remember who it was. Patrick Proctor uh, designed some uh, games, especially in the 2000s. He had uh, where he'd have icons that were on, you know, a topo map, and it's it worked to some extent. But also there was a sort of a, a bit of um, I don't know what you'd call it, sort of cognitive dissonance, uh, where you had very simple representations on a very detailed map. Um, it's one of the things that I think uh, Flashpoint. Uh, got right with the Flashpoint Germany, where they were they actually used hexes. Um, Flashpoint it was Flashpoint campaigns, yeah. Uh, because I think that if you're going to use that kind of stylized symbology, you need to um, you need to uh, to do it throughout the game. And I I think that sometimes that people don't understand that. But I mean, there there are tons of real time games now. It's just that you don't have the real time resolution, right? I mean, well, what's that? The Civil War General, the um, Ultimate General Civil War, or the, yeah. the get, yeah. I mean, that's as I mean, that's as real time as you get, right? So I think that that stuff exists. I just think that the the give you give orders and then re resolve them 
with the, with the notable exception of combat mission. Uh, but then combat mission is all about the thing that you watch being like a movie, right? I mean, in a tactical battle, you watch the tanks shoot each other, right? Which is really cool. Um, watching little squares on a map move, possibly less cool. So I don't know that, uh, I think it works for different things. And I'm, I'm not surprised that it never took off as a, you know, the de facto, uh, the de facto, um, rubric, but you know, there, there are places where it's been used to good effect. So turning back to you, uh, for, for one second, Hmm. what do you think, like this, this was an important game, uh, for you at, at the time. I'm curious in what ways do you think this influenced your thinking, uh, both as games you were drawn to over the years, but then also as you started to emerge as a critic? Well, I think that the, the thing that this game taught me was that uh, no matter how much detail you give somebody, you're going to try to master it. So uh, it's very hard to say, don't pay attention to X or Y, just kind of feel feel it out. It's hard, but then that's kind of also the essential way that you eventually sort of, you know, uh, you know, assimilate it, which is that, you know, these, all these, these units had, you know, very granular combat strengths. And at first we we're like, okay, this guy's got this much, this guy's this much. And then we kind of realized, ah, you, you just can't do that. It's not, doesn't matter if that guy has 88 and that guy has 81, whatever, just kind of push your tanks this way and push the infantry that way. And then you see which guys are getting, hit hardest and and that kind of thing. So it did create this, um, it did create this uh, feeling of you don't need to use all the information. And then that got me thinking, well, if I don't need to use all that information, why is that information there? And I think I ran with that for a long time as a critic until I sort of got the sense that, you know, people are playing games for, I mean, I just could never understand why you would want information that you couldn't effectively use. And that was sort of my critical sort of take for a long time. And then I just realized that the ability to immerse yourself in a game, just like you, you know, people who played whatever, Gothic uh, or Gothic 2 or whatever the heck that was, you know, or Ultima, where everybody had, you know, the the NPCs had, had schedules. Why do you you know, who cares if they had schedules? Well, of course you care because that meant that the world was a little bit more realistic for you or, or, or you could, your, your transportation, you could imaginably transport yourself to the world where, yeah, you know that the, the brewer is going to be working in the morning to this time and then he'll go to lunch and sometimes he gets drunk and doesn't come back. Uh, you know, does it matter for the game? It might or it might not, but that's where the game is, right? That's the, that's the game is creating the world that you then jump into. And I finally got the idea that people were uh, completely comfortable with having a ton of information as long as they felt that the information was, uh, was working in a, um, in, a re- you know, in a reasonable way in terms of their understanding of the, uh, of the campaign. Um, I, it was funny. I was, I was, uh, listening in on the, the, the beta test for the alpha test. I don't know if they were even beta yet for War in the East 2. And they were, you know, trying to look at the 
the the um, uh, sortie rates and and loss rates for for various aircraft. And you know, people were reporting, okay, I have this many aircraft. I flew this thing, and this is this, and this. Look and look, and I lost all these. There's no way I should be losing that many aircraft. And like, yeah, that those loss rates don't seem right. So. They turned out over, you know, the, the, you know, Joel Billings would send that information back to Gary Grigsby. And then, of course, you know, a week later, there'd be a, a patch and, and they have tweaked something. It's like, OK, fly these again and see if this and it's, it's sort of all this, you know, uh, I don't know how to put it. Just it's, it's just trial and error. Right. It's just like, what can we how can we make this game seem like something that the people who are playing it understand as what the war was like now does that mean it was does that mean it was like the war no it means like it means that it was like what people understood the war to be therefore to them it's realistic and i mean that's fine it's, they're entertainment products right and there's no there's no there's nothing there's nothing hinging on whether this thing works or not uh other than their sales and people's enjoyment so I mean, fine. And I think that's something that uh, it took me a while to get because I just couldn't sort of grok it. I felt like I needed to be in control of everything. Or if I couldn't be in control of it, then I just didn't want the game. Didn't didn't seem to make any sense to me. But, uh, you know, everybody evolves their thinking. But your thinking continued to evolve because when I, when I played this game, mm-hmm. this sort of felt like it was one of those things where I was like, ah, yeah, of course this is a game that Bruce would pull right now because I often think a bit about... This was years ago now at this point, but you you sort of had a conversation mm-hmm. uh, with, with mm-hmm. me and Troy. I don't remember if it was on a mm-hmm. podcast or if mm-hmm. it was uh, over emails. You were discussing show planning, and you were just cards on the table. You were like, I think... Mm-hmm. A lot of what is happening in computer strategy and war games bores me. And mm-hmm. I've seen it, been there, done that, and it compares very poorly to what mm-hmm. I enjoy in games and what I see happening mm-hmm. in tabletop. Uh, so I'm going to focus more on that. And so I'm curious, like, mm-hmm. okay, so you, you got why people wanted these things and you were a little more, you were a little mm-hmm. more, like... Right. Nobody cares about Not that your approval is what matters, but you know what I mean? But you, you like... Mm-hmm. the mystery of like what do right. people see in it you solved that yeah. mystery and you understood it and you became <laughs> a little less co- like confrontational about it but then sometime after that you sort of hit the point where you're like okay right. i get well, it I mean, I, i'm, I'm also still at that point the hell i don't really i'm not interested in a whole bunch of detail for the details sake um but i i mean I, i'm 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 my, i think my days of sitting in front of a computer screen and looking at stuff in isolation and trying to solve those kinds of problems is pretty much over in terms of, of playing, you know, hardcore computer war games against some AI. I might do that uh, for a board game against another player, but I prefer board games for a lot of reasons, the tactile part of it very much. I, I adore the uh, face-to-face um interaction when you play i mean that's that's 90 percent of why i play is i want to be you know interacting with that other person and 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 sharing our our experience and enjoyment of of the subject matter now because of covid obviously that is going to be a lot harder to do um i don't get the same uh, kicks out of vassal but i still do vassal you can still play with people and talk and it's it's you know it's better than nothing but 
I mean, I've seen how um, there's a game out now uh, by, you know, so Victor Reichers uh, made uh, decisive uh, campaigns, Barbarossa, uh, which we talked about, I think Rod Humble, uh, about uh, he had the political aspect to the game and all that kind of stuff. And he now has made a game called, I think it's called Shadow Empires. Have you played that? No. Okay. So Victor Reichers... Uh, of VR Designs is uh, is hard at work with a game called Shadow Empires, which is really a hardcore war game, like a real war game with you know units and 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 supply and and combat and everything that a real war game would do, plus economics, plus sci-fi, and. It is, uh, I would call it notorious or maybe um, just notable for its complete opacity. And people will, if you, one of the uh, forums that uh, I think you and I have read in the past quarter to three, they have uh, had... uh, on, you know, energetic ongoing discussions where people are trying to explain to other people how things work and they're not really quite sure. And then Victor will post uh, on the, the Steam forum saying, oh, uh, actually, uh, this thing that I that I thought was going to do this thing, it, it doesn't do that thing. It does some other thing. And so I fixed that. And, and he has, there are buttons called stratagems, which is if you don't really know what's going on, just hit the button and the game will do some stuff for you that makes reasonable sense. I mean, it's, it's, which, which to me is almost a parody, but I feel like it really dives to that level of detail that, you know, some people really want. They just want to, uh, our, our uh, mutual uh, friend and podcaster, Tom Chick, uh, explained it. I think he had a very good way that he put it. He said, you want to grind against some complexity. And you know, that there's something to that. I mean, I think War in the East does a similar thing where you you try to figure out how the system's working under the hood uh, and you might not understand all of it, but you discover things and by the time that you figure out how the game works, you've spent so much time that it doesn't matter that the AI sucks because, well, you got your 100 hours out of it, so, you know, what's the difference? Um, but that's a game that I think really... It, I think he's, I don't know, I have no idea. I've not talked to Victor about it. I, I don't have any insight into it at all. I just speculate that maybe he wanted to sort of branch out and take his, the the stuff that he's good at, which is programming really detailed simulations into a more sort of accessible, uh, you know, not everybody really wants to play the Germans or play the Germans and the Soviets, but maybe we'll play a, a you know, a sci-fi game where you, uh, where you recruit guys and the guys have different, you know, abilities and you make, put them in charge of different units. And then those units have different, you know, capabilities and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, that's something you should check out shadow empires because that that's really going, it's, it's sort of going the, um, uh, it's, it's the harpoon of sci-fi, I think. Uh, yeah, there've been a few people in the, uh, three MA family who've gotten mm-hmm. a little bit stuck on that game as well. So I, I think I'm going again. to, I'm going to have to take a look at it. Um, mm-hmm. in, sure. you know, we're wrapping up here. Um, 
I thought I would ask you. Mm. Actually, that's no, a whole can of worms. I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you for your grand unified theory on mm-hmm. the Squad Leader because one of my formative games was Squad Leader, right? Um, and I had this realization mm-hmm. a while ago where there's certain types of games that I think mm-hmm. what appeals to me is not necessarily playing the game, but being mm-hmm. the type of person and having the kind of life mm-hmm. where I would mm-hmm. be able to get really into that game. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think squad leader was that for me. And I think for a long time, Mm -hmm. I because I because I came to squad leader as a kid and I played, you know, basically all the stuff Mm -hmm. in the starter scenario pack. uh, Right. But Mm -hmm. what I never got into was all the modules. And for a long time, I sort of defined that was kind of my, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm white whale or whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it where, where I was like, that's the hardest core, mm-hmm. most serious, most like mm-hmm. simulational type war game out there. And I was convinced mm-hmm. that was true because it has so many rules mm-hmm. and it has so many cases that it is trying to model. And then when we saw each other last summer, um, you said something that put a lot of things in perspective for me where you said, it being a simulation is actually a huge misunderstanding. It's it's a role playing game. It's, it's it's a narrative game. Yeah, I mean, I can answer your question. It's not really that big a can of worms. Uh, the idea of um, my grand unified theory of of gaming in terms of squad leader. Squad leader is a flight sim. Fla- squad leader is a game in which your sort of. Uh, your enjoyment partially comes from your ability to master the systems. So, I mean, people, I keep hearing people talk about, you know, hey, I can, you know, I can cold start uh, a MiG-21 or something like that from the, you know, the DCS simulator stuff. Um, And the ability to play a a squad leader scenario, advanced squad leader uh, in the desert with tanks and uh, dust and infantry, um, there's a certain amount of, expertise to it and people like that and also people like uh doing detail-oriented things um they like obsessing over things together that's what that's what sort of gaming geeks like they obsess over the same thing together and so if you run up against a rules question there's nothing more enjoyable than getting the the same geek that's sitting across the table from you to pull out the rule book and now you're going to talk about it and how you know how would you interpret this and what is you know what do you think this really works and then you're 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 using that uh, that that uh, sort of cognitive power to turn over questions that you find interesting, like how far could this tank get in uh, sort of like hard scrabble desert, right? I mean, could would it break? What what's the breakdown uh, situation like? Uh, you know, could you really hit that guy from that far away if he's turning and he's got a big uh, dust cloud behind him? Who knows? But there's you know you 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 get to obsess over details which is a very uh nerd-like gaming thing and you get to uh demonstrate mastery of complex systems which is another very nerd-like gaming thing so i'm not uh surprised that squad leader still exists uh by the way the, the second edition of the uh, rule book just got reprinted with additional errata so there's a they're just within like the last few weeks there's a new uh brand new rule book um that is the most recent, and uh, so it's going like hotcakes. Uh, pick up your copies now, but um, but I'm totally, I'm I'm totally, uh, I totally understand why the 
gaming audience has a soft spot for these things where you can get lost in detail and complexity because that's the kind of thing that people of this mindset, and I mean, I, I, I'm a geek like you wouldn't believe, um, that type of personality really enjoys that kind of problem solving. So I, I get it. I'm not, I'm not going to jump into Shadow Empires and, and try to solve it. I just don't have the interest really. Uh, I have other things that I would rather do with the time that I have, but I get it and I don't begrudge people their time doing it. So one of the things that we've ended up talking about in a lot of these segments is just where we're at with uh, games in general. I think we've we've touched on this a bit, uh, but in terms of like. And like the thing that is animating your interest, uh, what is still exciting mm-hmm. you and mm-hmm. getting you in- engaging the best parts of yourself as a gamer and a critic. Mm-hmm. What's doing that mm-hmm. these days? Uh, what What is the stuff that fires your imagination at this point? Uh, mostly board games, but if you if you have to uh, if you have to nail me down to something that I'm playing on the computer, uh, Slay the Spire has uh, still I play it all the time. It's on, out on iOS now. I play it all the time. Uh, just pull out the iPad, uh, you know, get a few relics, uh, kill a few elites, uh, whatever, uh, smith a few cards, and uh, and then there's a game called Monster Train which is sort of a, I don't know, Slay the Spire meets Hearthstone, not quite sure, uh, which uh, I've been playing a lot of. Um, and uh, it's kind of like tower defense and, uh, and deck building and, uh, and roguelike all put together. So those are the games. So if, if, if I'm playing anything on the computer these days, it's going to be uh, either it's going to be Vassal or it's going to be Slay the Spire or Monster Train. That's what I got. In terms of tabletop, because you talk about the board games though. Like I'm cu- I am curious. Oh, board games. Oh, um, things I'm playing. Okay. Uh, so I just got, so I just got the new, um, OCS, uh, release is Hungarian Rhapsody, the battle for Hungary, October, 1944 to February, 1945. Can't wait to play this thing. I've saw it in, uh, in play test at the, uh, um, at the uh, Consum World Expo uh, last year in, in 2019. There actually wasn't a 2020 Expo because of COVID. And then there's another game that just came out, uh, which is everybody's. I uh, don't know if you've uh, heard of it, but uh, uh, Ananda Gupta and Jason Matthews, the designers of Twilight Struggle, have released their long-awaited Imperial Struggle. Uh, the battle between uh, the, the global war between France and, and Britain uh, from basically... Uh, the beginning to the end of the uh, 18th century, uh, including the, uh, you know, war, the Spanish succession, Austrian succession, uh, seven years war and war of uh, American war of independence. Uh, it's a, it's really, here's a spoiler. It's a Euro. It really is a Euro. Um, it's not as, I don't think it's well themed as Twilight Struggle, um, but it has, uh, it certainly has its merits. And uh, I've been playing that actually quite a bit on Vassal. And uh, when I get, uh, when I get some face-to-face time, I might uh, use that as well. All right. Uh, well, Bruce, thank you so much for being here through 500 episodes. Uh, well, thanks, Rob. I, I think that uh, the fact that you can pull up any kind of episode that you, that you guys, uh, Troy and you have had a such a run with getting episodes 
that I can just sort of randomly pull one up and, and it'll be interesting. I think it's it's amazing that 500 have gone by, but uh, I've enjoyed being part of it every single time. All right. Thank you. Good night. That will do it for this week and this first set of 500 episodes. Thank you for listening all these days, and I hope we will continue to make it worth your time and attention. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. This episode was produced by TJ Hafer. Three Moves Ahead is hosted in the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. That also has further information about our super secret Discord server where we occasionally even talk about strategy games. Anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, for the entire extended 3MA family, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.